Welcome to Supporting Cast, the show about the undersung heroes of the cinema industry. You may not recognize your names. You no. will recognize. <laughs> you, guys, you may not recognize your names. You may not recognize your names, but you will recognize your faces. We've <laughs> got a rare disease. <laughs> I have face blindness and I've forgotten my own name. Uh, I'll take it one more time just in case. Welcome to Supporting Cast, the show about the undersung heroes of the cinema industry. You may not recognize their names. You will recognize their work with me as always is charlie devonport and lincoln vickery what's up nerds hello and, and i'm seamus quinn hello seamus how are you today <laughs> i am really good we've got a goofy energy there's going a goofy on. energy going on i'm on my second coffee i'm very excited about mm. it i'm really really excited to talk about hector elizondo again who is I love to talk the zond crushing it in this movie this mo- yeah he's so yeah. So this is the second episode in our Hector Elizondo series. The first one that we did was Taking of Pelham 123, spelt one as in the word, not the 123 with John Travolta and Denzel Washington. Don't confuse that like I did. Um, <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, it is, it is spelled. It's spelled. It's spelled it, they've spelled out the numbers yes. in the original version. Very important. That is the only because difference. In, in the old <laughs> days, no one could read digits. No one could. Um, it just looks ugly to put numeracy on a, on yeah, a yeah. title back yeah. then. If you want more of a breakdown of Hector's early career, things he was doing before he started working in film, you can listen to that episode. We've got a nice little breakdown before we start talking about train heists and going a bit off the rails, but uh, it's, it's a pretty fun episode, so give that one a listen if you want to know more about Hector. Long story short, an incredible character actor, career spanning over 53 years and 159 acting credits on IMDb. That's a lot. That's more than me. Yeah, I'll, uh, let me count. <laughs> With our powers combined, um, that's more than us. <laughs> our powers combined is what, 18? <laughs> Do target ads count? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Does that count towards your IMDb? Uh... My IMDb forever, for some reason, credited me on a show called Just a Little Harmless Sex, which wow, was released in dramatic. 1993. <laughs> and if you're counting, that's two years before I was born. You are really good on that show, though. It's well, your I- best work. Honestly. Thank work. you. I'm credited as lighting, so you know. I was really best I was doing I was doing the most important job of the show Just Little Harmless Sex. Yeah. Just okay. lighting up the crotchies. Yeah, so, getting some bounce off the bums. Speaking of Speaking um, of bouncing, speaking off, of the bouncing bums. off the oh, yeah. bums. Today I was excited that we all got to watch a movie that none of us had seen. I think that's the first time that it's happened. First time we've done it on the podcast. Pod. Yeah, Taken was new for me, but Taken. Taking, Take, taken. The taking, <laughs> the taken Liam, taken Liam Neeson's Taken. Yeah, I've done that. We're not doing. We, I don't know why you watch Taken. Liam, we're not covering. What are you it talking about? <laughs> Liam Neeson, hugely famous. What are you like, talking yeah, about? Liam Neeson's really big. Although I did just watch House of Wax, which is directed by um, drama Collett Sarah. I apologize if that name is incorrect. Who then went on to do all of the Liam Neeson like old guy post Taken, so like nonstop run oh. all night. So and then House of Wax was kind of an early movie of his. And here's what I have to say about House of Wax. That movie's really good. Anyway, sorry. Speaking of you House literally of Wax. you heard it here literally first. <laughs> House of Wax good. <laughs> so today we are talking about the nineteen eighty classic film, which had a lot more influence than I think I realized at the time, American Gigolo. Starring a very young Richard Gere. Not very young. He's 31, he's isn't 30, it? He's uh, 30, yeah. But a young, I mean, young, you know, he looks great. Good for him. He still looks uh-huh. great. So yeah. good for him. There's going to be moments in this podcast where I may have to recuse myself from, from saying hot, hot, 
horribly horny things. I hated the stammer halfway through. Stammering on a H is the horniest way to stammer. Oh, look, I should maybe save this for later, but I'm not going to. My weirdest take, and kind of my only take on this movie, is I'm not attracted to Richard Gere. That's that's so fucked up. Well, I was surprised. That's so disgusting to hear. I, I feel like I should have been. I w- like it seemed everything on screen, everything about this movie. I'm like, I know I should be horny for gear right now. I, 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 he's. <laughs> oh, sorry. Actually, I wanted to. Sorry, we, I, we will continue. Please, please, if you have children listening to this episode, turn it off. Change episodes. Turn it up. We are, <laughs> we are explicit at all times, um, but this episode is going to be so for adults only. This is an R-rated, do not take your kids to see this podcast. Absolutely not. I am going to talk awful, awful things. Yeah, also just content warning for this one. Lots of homophobic slurs, mm, uh, depictions not, of violence yeah. against women, against men, against everyone involved, and, you know, just all, yep. all around general bleakness yeah. in tone. So yep. if you're not wanting to listen to that, then turn this one off this and ain't listen this- to Donnie Darko. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get started on this video, have anyone got any information about where our mate Hector was at this point in his career? Last week we talked about 1974's Taking a Pelham 123. Now we've got the 1980s. Film. So can you give us a breakdown of what his credits were like in between then? Basically between then and now, now being 1980, where I now live. <laughs> Time goes um, he, has, he has done just an absolute shit ton of TV. So uh, episodes of Kojak, an episode of Columbo, the movie Thieves. He's in The Rockford Files and then American Gigolo. So, so, basically, so this is for four young doctors in love as well. Yes, yes. Okay, sick. So this is a bit of a jump up in terms of like screen time and stuff. This is a second lead character, oh, yeah. I would and say. I, I think this is a case of... Of, I think he knew Paul Schrader, like just because Paul Schrader kind of knew everyone. I'll get into old mate Paul later, but had been working in the TV industry in LA and then Paul kind of called him up and basically needed someone that was the opposite of Richard Gere, which is maybe slightly insulting, but is like you kind of get it. And so that's kind of how he ended up in. Yeah, and in he, this. he brings the energy in his performance that is obviously like consciously being the opposite of what Richard Gere is playing. Oh, he's opposite incredible of- in this performance. He's great. What I love about him is that when we get onto next week's episode, he's now really very much known for like kind of warm characters. And the last Mm. two we've done, he's played antagonists. Mm. And And this one is still kind of warm, but they're very different. So Pelham and this, um, Sunday versus Mr. Grey is very interesting, I think. Because they're, we'll get into it. I also think like a lot of this movie, let's be fair, it's pretty mean to how... (laughs) Old Hector looks. Yeah, this yeah has a has a long sequence where Richard Gere just reams Hector Elizondo. Well, my the character f- Detective Sunday uh, about how he looks. My favorite part of the movie. It's not, I'm not joking. My favorite scene in the movie. Um, but and he kind of I- loves it. Yeah. yeah. No, it's great. They have they have chemistry. Anyway, we'll talk about this later. Let's get into this movie. I mean, because I I hadn't yeah, seen it. Roll. None of us had seen it. And yeah, let's. I think Lincoln's got a bit of a. Breakdown? Let's dive straight in. So, released on February 1st, 1980, American Gigolo is a neo-noir erotic thriller written and directed for the screen by America's favourite scummy uncle, Paul Schrader. Schrader first conceived of the idea for the film while teaching screenwriting at UCLA. He was obsessed with LA's nightlife at the time, as well as dealing with his own emergent sexuality escaping from his Calvinist roots. Schrader wanted to write something a little different from his previous work, saying, The character in Taxi Driver was compulsively non-sexual. The character in American Gigolo is compulsively sexual. 
sexual. He's a man who receives his identity by giving sexual pleasure, but has no concept of receiving sexual pleasure. The film released to mixed reviews, but due to its marketing around its leading man and the shape of a suit and the way light falls on him, significant box office, ending at a cool and sexy $22.5 million worldwide. Not bad for a movie made for less than $5 million. While Schrader has continued to make movies about lonely men for his whole career, seemingly finding an unending pool of depth in that particular well, American Gigolo stands out amongst his oeuvre as a true cultural shift. It was said that the opening shot of American Gigolo, Richard Gere in an immaculate suit, driving a gorgeous black Mercedes, hair waving in the wind, crystal blue ocean water and palm trees around him, was the true signifier of the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s. Do you have to have like a cold shower after that? <laughs> <laughs> That was. Lincoln got an erection on the word (laughs) oeuvre. I'm so I'm so embarrassed about these little intros, and I think it's good that you guys are shitting all over me. I think it's really important. I thought Uh, that was great. You set the scene because you know what else sets the scene. The first shot of this movie, which we're talking it's about. A sick opening. I don't think I've ever been trans like or I have been okay. Obviously it's not the first time I've ever like watched a movie and felt trans transported because <laughs> I'll be it was just American Gigolo, nothing else, and I'd be like, have you seen more than five movies? But when it opens, you go, Holy moly, there is a vibe. There is the coolest looking car you've ever seen. There is a great song that, oh my God, I hope you like this song. Because if you don't like this song, you're fucked for the rest of the film. Remember Midnight Cowboy? (laughs) Remember how that only had one song? We're doing it again. It was filmed in the 70s, right? Yeah. But is the most 80s thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Well, yeah. It was the thing that is recognised kind of. I I can't remember actually who wrote the thing that it started the 80s. But it's like, that was the whole conception of the 80s and Schrader kind of like had it in 1979 and wrote the script in 76. It's interesting how he was like on the forefront of that kind of a cultural shift. Well, it's a very fashion forward movie. Like this oh, movie yeah. is credited with like bringing Armani to Hollywood. Yeah. And it's like, if you are essentially taking what will become the next biggest fashion designer and putting it on screen in 1979, you are determining fashion for the next 20 years in a big way. Yeah. Before, God, I love his sunglasses. That was my first we- note get into the breakdown of the scenes. I think I just want to talk about some fun facts around this film, such as casting. This film had a lot of people attached to play the protagonist, Julian Kay, who ended up, of course, being played by Richard Gere. This propelled Richard Gere into, like, he was already famous. Apparently this kind of propelled him as a leading man sex symbol. Yeah, so he turned from, like, he was in stuff, but then turned into, like, the Richard Gere that we know from this movie. Like, it's not like he wasn't... he was up and coming. But yeah, he was like an up and comer. And then this movie kind of propelled him to like an entire phenomenon just by himself mm. because he was kind of the face of, there's a, a great podcast that Karina Longworth did. You must remember this, but she's doing, she did like an erotic 80s series and talked about this movie. And he became like the face of a certain type of sex symbol, which was like women now want to have have sex just like men do. And he kind of became the face of that. Whether that is good or bad is interesting and she gets it on in, into it on the podcast, but he ends up being like a huge cultural signifier, both of the 80s and a certain type of feminist independence and object of desire. I think for our generation as well, he became the stereotypical mum's favourite actor. Sure. Okay. Like, that's the thing I yeah, remember. I wonder if it is my mum's favourite. I don't think so. But like the sexiest. I, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, let's yeah. call it. <laughs> let's so call it right now. <laughs> I mean, that would be fun. <laughs> that would be fun, but I, I don't want to do the that. <laughs> I think that would be weird. <laughs> Hello, mum, are you horny for gear? <laughs> uh, I'd like to um, change the topic. Sorry. <laughs> There's certain different types of like leading man sex symbol in terms. I think this movie is a 
again, a very interesting exploration of masculinity, as a lot of Paul Schrader's films are. I think yeah. that we've got a heavily yeah, kind manicured. Of all of. Yeah, that's his entire thing. All of that's his uh, thing. He's not really saying he's much like, men, what do we think? <laughs> <laughs> but I think in terms of heavily stylized, like, you know, like takes care of themselves, like is in and not in, you know, there's it's like the opposite of like the action hero that's like Yeah actively like masculine in that way. Like Richard Gere's character, you know, has hair product in there. He's, he's fine. He takes care of himself. He has tailored clothes. Like he, yeah. yeah. He's the American gigolo. Like, yes, he is. <laughs> sorry? He's the American sure? gigolo. <laughs> I, I'm just connecting the two words together right now. But yeah, he he, he defined open sexuality in that way. Like, yeah. So, talking about casting. some alternate, yeah. Oh, yeah, alternate, re- so, alternate realities where, this, where another man defined the sex symbol of the 80s. There were two people attached to star in this film. First one is one that I can see, but I'm glad that he didn't do it because I think that he is inherently, he already did Saturday Night Fever. This is John Travolta. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as the legends have it, by legends, I mean the facts of the like trivia. The reason he, as the legend of John Travolta as, as in the American legend <laughs> has it, Stories. John Travolta wasn't um, able to do the filming of American Gigolo <laughs> due to a, another thing he had on. I climbed to the top of a mountain in a storm and found this story etched into a marble plinth. The tale will be told for many years to come. So IMDBtrivia.com. So John Travolta wanted the final say on the final cut of the film and Paul Schrader said no. Absolutely not. And then he went, no. Nah. But apparently, according to rumours, he had already been fitted for all these Armani suits. Yeah, that's and the he- reason they had Armani on board because they had John Travolta, they got all the Armani suits and then they were like, let's just keep it and then tailor them, tailor them to Richard. Yep. But apparently John Travolta kept a bunch of the suits even though he didn't do the film, which is I find funny. He's like, he's like, I'll be taking these suits. <laughs> I, read, I read they had to get like a whole bunch of new suits because Travolta's two inches taller than Gear, which is surprising to me. I, I always imagine Travolta is quite a short man. I've got a Schrader quote. Travolta was originally going to star and his manager suggested Armani because he knew that he was on the verge of becoming big. We all went to Milan and Giorgio was just getting ready to go into an international non-couture line. Can you imagine calling Armani Giorgio? Giorgio. Being on first name terms with Giorgio So the film synced up perfectly with what he was up to. John dropped out at the last moment and Richard came in, but we kept all the Armani clothes. It was just a matter of tailoring. I've worked with Giorgio subsequently, but the last time I tried to pull him into a film, his representative told him... We don't do films anymore. It's too much work. We prefer to just do the red carpet. That's where the money is. So, yeah, so I think they kept all of that. Mm. All right, so that was false news uh, about John Travolta keeping his suits. I mean, he probably just owns Armani suits anyway. I probably stole a few. Yeah. (laughs) Traded in here. Also, the other actor who was set to star was, of course, Christopher Reeve. Yeah. I would have loved to see that. He he was the first choice, I think. He was like, Schrader presented him the script first, which is really fascinating to think about and would be like, such an interesting like this movie, but it's Superman. Like it's kind of a fascinating yeah. kind of I tear down th- rather than like this, which launched Gear's career. It's kind of like a um examination of Christopher Reeve's yeah. career. I think That's both John Travolta and Christopher Reeve are actually strong choices for this film. John Travolta, I'm glad didn't do it because I think he, he is just very Travolta. And it would and it would have been like it would have overshadowed it, the entire film. You know, I think Saturday Night Fever is a similar sort of film, actually. Yeah. Which is shocking. Just to any children who are not listening to this, for anyone who's seen Grease and wants to show their kids another musical movie they think is going to be a fun time, <laughs> don't show them Saturday Night Fever. No. Don't traumatise your kid like I had. My parents like, this is surely a great musical. It's actually really depressing <laughs> and one of the heaviest movies I've ever seen. Saturday Night Fever, not a fun disco romp as it turns out. Show anyway. them cabaret. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> really light and fun. 
<laughs> I had one other rumored casting choice, and yeah. I did not go down the rabbit hole to try and confirm this. But my God, I, you were talking about two good choices. Third choice. Chevy Chase. Ooh, <laughs> excellent <would> choice. <laughs> we really missed out. National uh, Lampoon's been... American Gigolo. Imagine how <laughs> awful him doing the sit-ups. Are you sure that wasn't for Juice Bigelow, male Gigolo? Because <laughs> that uh, seems to fit more. The amount of times I talked about this movie and I said Juice Bigelow, male Gigolo yeah. instead of or like that's that's what I thought of. Is that a direct? Parody of this. I, don't, I've I never couldn't seen find Juice I couldn't find anything about whether it was inspired or parodied by it. Right, um, but one would assume that there's obviously some kind of. You know, well, there's got to be something. I mean, Gigolo, male Gigolo, seems like less of a parody of it as Bru- as Juice, Boost, Juice, Bigolo, Juice Bigolo, European, European Gigolo. Gigolo. Like yeah. that seems like so it's maybe on that it. one is like yeah, maybe, suddenly he's in Armani suits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. Going yeah. Through, I don't know. I haven't seen it. Oh, it's time for a marathon. Yeah, we'll cover we'll cover the juices. We'll cover Juice Juice. Take a little sip of Deuce at some point. <laughs> oh. No. <laughs> Let's dive into the movie. Let's dive oh, there, back in. Yeah, well, oh, also, casting-wise, Meryl Streep was also for the Lauren Hutton role was thought of, and then there was one other. Glenn Jessica Close. Lang as well. And Lang. Jessica Lang was off. Apparently, he wanted Lauren Hutton. Sorry. Paul did. He also wanted mate. gear. He got his way. Um, yeah, he wanted her, but the studio didn't want to cast her because I don't think she had that many acting credits, really. She's She was actually famously a model, right? Yeah. She's a supermodel. And I think that they wanted Jessica Lang, but Jessica Lang ended up turning down the script because she thought the content was a bit too dark to where she wanted to be filming at that time. She Jessica. decided, yeah. She's and that role is- Next year she does The Postman Always Rings Twice, which is like an incredibly hectic Jack Nicholson tries to um, sexually assault her several times and then yeah. they come together and then- but I guess you just I don't, know. don't know like where people are at. She might have just come off something heavy and been like, yeah. I'd rather do, you know, a light-hearted romp. And mm. I guess but like that character, we'll talk about this when we get to it. The ca- that character is actually really interesting. Fascinating. You're like, really, whoa. Really yeah. great. I think, yeah. It's I think an it's interesting character. character. I'm like, this is crazy. I can't believe they're going here with this. She seems absolutely hilarious too. She was um recently in Australia because she's still modelling. She's Hutton? 70. Yeah. Hutton's in, Hutton's in Oz? She was Hutton, about two Hutton weeks ago. Under? She was on the project. I actually looked this up and I was Sick. like, what? And she got censored because she kept on making all these sexual innuendos. <laughs> she's could, in her like mid-70s. I reckon she's like, Maybe we can go and um, she literally said apparently to, I think it was Michael Hing was the host, like, they said, Hutton. what was the key to staying young? And she said, don't stop fucking. And I had to, I had to censor her because it's like a Let's seven o'clock. Let's go. Hutton. Anyone, then, anyone listening that's got a link to Hutton, please. Or Hector, obviously. That would probably lit. be better, but still. And honestly, she sounds like the greatest time ever. So we've got into the first shot of the movie. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay. no, I, well, I actually, I must take us back. The Paramount logo. Let's talk about it for 45 minutes. Uh, Are you it looks about good. the font? Yeah, well, I'm going to talk about the fo- the American Gigolo font, which I think is great. But I really want to start with the old school Paramount logo. Okay. That kind of like late 70s, 80s. I think it's mostly all the way through the 80s. Paramount logo is really beautiful. That's it. That's all I'll say. We have a big wide synth sounds that like jigsaw synth sound over a film by Paul Schrader and then Richard Gere, the name, and then American Gigolo. That font. Incredible. Is so Good. It's the best font. It, it, like I, I'm now, I'm now. It's like something that we've discussed. I think every single time is font is is the font of the main title. If you compare this to Donnie Darko, it's blowing it out of the water. <laughs> well, so this compare is the it to S Darko. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, is that papyrus? <laughs> it's straight up papyrus. Um, is this a better title font? Than speed. Yes. Okay, interesting. Oh, that speed's speed? great. That speed, like word art, is really good. What I like about speed is that it moves quickly. 
<laughs> like the font goes yeah. whoosh. That's good. I thought you meant the opening secret talk- moves quickly. I was like, no, it doesn't. It's a slow <laughs> shot of an elevator. <laughs> we're we're not talking about. Uh, we're, we're just talking about font. We're just talking about font. Then and, it goes and suiting to- the movie. As uh, well. No, I think I think so, the way that it comes in because the American Gigolo is like written in quite slowly, which is good, like Paul Schrader themey thing because he loves we should diaries, do- and I bet that's actually why it is because it's a reference to pickpocket. We'll get to pickpocket. I later. also think that American Gigolo. If we're talking like they're both great designs, I think they're in terms of what suits the tone of the film and what takes you there immediately. They're both good at that because speed speeds in. Speed goes quick. But I think American Gigolo, just, it's got that, you go, ooh. It like, is it's this intimate, sexy, sexy, classy, and like a little bit empty, which uh, yeah, is like the little, whole movie. <laughs> a little bit sleazy. Yeah. yeah. Like that real kind of, you're, you're like, oh, what? Whoa. We should yeah, do no, I, whoa. <laughs> I love font, honestly. Oh, yeah, baby. This <laughs> is absolutely off topic. and got horny. Let's this go. Is, this is going to be the greatest episode of any podcast this ever. Is, this is so going to be covered. I've never thought about fonts in movies before. I really haven't. And until until I started doing this podcast, and now I think about it, I, I saw Oppenheimer, and that's Oppie. a pretty Fonten good Heimer. font. But you know what has a great font? The June fucking. Oh, the that's June. probably the best font, font is, I've ever seen. Yeah. And it's all the- I was just like, this is a genius. It's so good. That's it's the best one I've ever seen. That, that takes American Gigolo. Uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I know what my- best uh, ever. I know mine, and it's really predictable. Is it Little Lord of the Rings. Sunshine? <laughs> Lord of the Rings, Rings. yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, pretty, pretty the, good font. The Elvish uh, in Lord of the Rings as like the font. Is it used in the title sequence? No, though? no, it's not at all. It's that gold, I, yeah, it's the I gold love inlay. that, but I feel like- is there ever a bit where it's used as part of the title? Because I would say, obviously, Elvish as a completely invented language from Tolkien has got to be the best font in cinema. That's not that's not what we're talking about. That's a completely we're different about conversation. Well, I'm trying. I am. I, I was also, going that's straight not a to font, That's a language, but it's also a font, like the handwriting that they create. Because these are that's in, a personal character's is, handwriting, right? Yeah. it's a language, not the not the word art. Yeah, those are <laughs> they're not. In no, I'm just trying to think if it is because you could say, <laughs> certainly say it's in the closing titles. They like use that font, the handwritten thing. The I American Gigolo is handwritten kind as well. Of mad. <laughs> I'm mad because you're like it's not a font. I'm like it's neither is yeah, but neither is this. This was handwritten on a piece of. Uh, That's a font. What we're saying is what? those are different <laughs> words. If they're different words, if they're not English, that's not a font. But okay, that's so you language. use that same font, that same design for say the closing sequences. Yeah, right. That's a font. Yeah, yeah okay. Thank no, you. no, okay. That's but, but they I don't think, use it for the opening right. titles of the Lord of the, Lord of the Rings, Rings opening title is that gold inlay. Yeah. But it's quite good. I, yeah, it is good. But it's not as no. say what you will, Harry Potter having a lightning bolt in there, that stuff is, <laughs> uh, right. is a is a vibe. Actually, and then, and then I'm, I'm with you on that for the flash the thing, as well. And then it flashes. I, do, I, do it's, like I mean it gets it across. Okay. Yeah. All right, American Gigolo, great font. That's what we got too. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I genuinely thought this was going to be the shortest episode we ever did for some reason. <laughs> You're a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> no, we were also invested with American Gigolo for no apparent re- or for a bunch of apparent reasons, actually. So I knew it was gonna be a big chat. I'm not I'm I'm not on the the same. I'm not in the same Mercedes convertible that you guys are. Yeah, Look, I really I, enjoyed I, I it. Fucking... I'm just not horny. Yeah, <laughs> I found this movie isn't. I don't think it's a great movie. Hear me out. Interesting. I think it's an interesting movie. I think it's important, but I think that there's a lot with it that is. Uh, we'll get into this though. Well, we will. Yeah, Let's go back. To be fair, the font is hugely important. <laughs> <laughs> the synth. 
Of the Jigsaw that Giorgio Moroder's giving us turns into Call Me by Blondie. It was written by Giorgio Moroder and performed by Blondie for this movie. And I said, oh, hell yeah, this song rips. And I hope it becomes the theme of the movie repeated with many different styles and instrumentations. And boy, was I rewarded. That's how Lincoln speaks to himself whilst watching a movie. I've, I've been with him on a couch. He has fully formed sentences. I was pretty bummed to hear that it didn't win best song at the oh, Academy Awards. Best original. It was actually beaten by Fame. Fame. So it wasn't even nominated. Is that David but Bowie's you know why, guys? Do you know why it wasn't nominated? Because I'm about to read out the uh, the nominees. And oh, honestly, and, it was and a stack like really here. Good. Okay, Fame, which is I'm going to live forever. You know, yeah. banger. Nine to five. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, this is a tight year. And it didn't win. So we've made it from the font to the opening song. <laughs> the and opening now song we're making we've it now the covered. Car. Then we see Richard Gere. He's looking incredible. He's driving one of the sexiest little convertible black Mercedes. His hair's blowing in the, in the wind. It's a big convertible. It's huge. Yeah, but it's sexy. <laughs> you said little. You said little. Well, I'm saying like, sexy little it's like a sexy term. little number. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just need to out Lincoln as a car guy. That's true. I, I, Well, okay, we've had this conversation many times. I would never consider myself like a car guy because I don't know like, you know, engines and engines and, you know, I don't know any of that shit. If I see a nice car and I, I like it, I will we'll talk about it. And this is a car I love. I... Love this car, but this is how little I know about cars. It came on and I said, is that a Cadillac? <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a Cadillac. But For a Mercedes, like, it looks like a Cadillac. It's a big-ass car. It's a big but it, lit- it literally opens on, like the film opens Mercedes. on the Mercedes logo, which yeah. is also like such a thing of, hey, this movie's going to be about consumerism and capitalism. Like that is this movie's what we're stylish. doing. It is interesting that this movie's called American Gigolo and it's an Italian suit designer and a German car. Well, that's that's the whole fucking point, Seamus, is that the because... <laughs> Um, Armani and that style of suit, specifically the suit that is styled like big shoulders but with a little bit of room at the waist, was called the global style, yeah. mm. which was because travel from Europe to America was easier, it meant that the American style was specifically influenced both by European culture and European artisans mm. and queer culture. And it was the combination of those two things and then cocaine that led to like the what 80s. America was like. <laughs> we also have a character who speaks multiple languages uh, has a fake career as a translator, you know, like well, I think it's not he's entirely a, fake. He does translate. He, he just does. He can do it. Also has sex with everyone. It's a front of a, you know, he does translate, mm, but yeah. it's, it's a front. Hector Elizondo is third build in this movie. He's playing Detective Sunday. He gets the beautiful font treatment. And then I was delighted and had no idea that Bill Duke is in this. Yes. In a big way. In a Big fucking way. He's so good in this movie. Yeah. And it was so, we've talked about uh, maybe wanting to cover Bill Duke. Yeah, he was, on the short, he was on the short list with Hector. Yeah, so we will definitely do Bill Duke one of these days. So all signs point so to us talking about American Gigolo. Like, no matter what timeline we went down, we would have ended <laughs> yeah, up We here. were going to do, we were going <laughs> to see Julian Kay. So we get a montage of gear. At the start of this movie, he's getting his suits tailored. He's seeing a woman to her door. He's at a fancy restaurant. He's driving around looking hot. We see that the music is by Giorgio Moroda. Um, I think the score of this movie is wonderful, Great. even though it, like, it is largely just different in- instrumentations of Call Me, but then it will fall into like just a low synth. There's other songs and, like, in and there there's others, well. Yeah, other bits. Oh, yeah. It's so good though, because like, you kind of like, I didn't know you could have a haunting rendition of the ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, and wow. Then, and you're like, wow. 
fuck. Ooh. ooh, ooh you know? <laughs> also, Charlie, you've, you've said on previous episodes you are a sucker for montages over music to introduce a character. So this must have like yeah, I loved it. Kicked you into high gear. <laughs> we arrive at Nina Palant's beach house. Gear gets out of his car and does a little sachet walk, and like immediately the camera just like you get what this movie is when the camera just hugs his hips, and you're like, oh, this is about. His hips. His hips. This movie is about Richard Gere's hips. Um, He's got such a great character walk in this and he just struts. It's a strut. Yeah. I think Richard Gere is doing some great work in this movie. Yeah. So we meet Palant's character who's basically one of Gere's managers. I'm going to avoid saying the word pimp I just think that's because important. I'm just going to say manager. Yeah. She has got a job for him, a lady who needs a chauffeur. Gear does a wry smile and while they argue about money, he sits next to a torso bust of a Greek god and so looks funny. out at the naked girls sunbathing on Palant's porch. And it's like, again, it's the same thing of like, we're just telling you mm. exactly what this movie is. Palant asks him how his Swedish is going. He says, all right, and we'll come back to that in a moment. This scene is James Bond and M except about sex work. In this sequence, I first of all went, that is one of the most hilarious tit flashes so early in the movie. Sure, Because it just cuts out to two naked women on the patio that we can never see again. No, 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 no. Initially, when I was like watching, I was like, that's a bit gratuitous. And then as the movie goes along, you're just like, ah, it is the movie. It's like, this movie is here to talk about sexuality. I don't know if I love everything this movie says about sexuality Mm. or about sex work, which is another thing that we should talk about in the context of this movie right up front is that this movie is about sex work before the stigma around sex work had started to be eroded and it is now being acknowledged as legitimate work and it is legitimate work. This movie is wrestling with that in a time where there was no sort of dominant idea that that was an acceptable way to look at it. Yeah, and I think the conversation around sex works are ever-evolving, and I think that up until really recently, it's only become a conversation, I think things like OnlyFans, like just sex work has been legitimised mm. in a very kind of mainstream way, which is new, even in the last five years. Mm. I think if you saw depictions of sex work from five years ago versus now, you would have a very different time. I 100%. actually was, in a way, I and I know that there's so much wrong with a lot of this, but mm. I, I think that it's kind of interesting to see even, particularly something from 1980, present sex work in even somewhat of a positive light. I, like, I was kind of like, this is interesting. You know, he's got the money. He's kind of presented as living this sort of fantasy life. He's a sex worker. And I'm just like, I think that I know that there's a lot to be said about it later on, but even that that was a conversation in a film from this time makes it inherently interesting immediately. And it's rare to have that even now. I was definitely pleasantly surprised by the way sex work is depicted in this. For about half of the movie, it is depicted as a legitimate lifestyle and career choice. And then it kind of certainly turns away from that. But I I, I, I kind of disagree on both both counts. (laughs) Interesting. I was surprised by how much dignity it was given at the very least. Yeah, and I think his grapples with sex work is not the common trait that you would see in a, you know, a classic, like you usually have like people are down on their luck and they've had to do this to like he, um, I think he is empowered by it in an interesting way in the way he kind of navigates his own sex work and how he kind of seems to genuinely enjoy his job, which is a rare thing. The comparison between this movie and Midnight Cowboy is so interesting. Sure. Because yeah. Midnight Cowboy- I actually didn't even, like, I said that before and yeah. I didn't even think of like, I, I oh th- yeah, they're still, they're very much in conversation with and each other. they've mm-hmm. both got the same thing, but they've only got one song that keeps on running yeah. through. And the interesting, like, even the contrast between the song in Midnight Cowboy, it is- um, Everybody's talking what, about Whatever me. that song is. I believe is. it's called Everybody's, Everybody's talking. talking About Me. And which is a wistful kind of lonely folk. 
folk song all about New York and trying to become like break into the sex work industry as a man from the country and then just not being good at it and your life falling apart in an attempt to become essentially Richard Gere's character in this movie mm. where he, you know, <laughs> John Voight in John Voight no. in American Cowboy? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. yes, yes John yes, Voight in American Cowboy Midnight is like- Cowboy. Midnight Cow- American, American Cowboy. Cowboy. Uh, Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> Sounds like a vampire movie and I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> that, you went to Count Chocula as the, as the a, Transylvanian gigolo? I am the Midnight Gigolo. I'll give you a song. <laughs> that seems like a sexy opportunity missed. <laughs> <laughs> a sexy opportunity mix. We were talking fairly seriously about the conversation that this movie is having with the ongoing uh, discussion jo- around sex work. John Voight in Midnight Cowboy wants to be Richard Gere, Richard in, Gere in American Gigolo. Both movies take a turn for the worst, as movies generally do. And it is interesting the way the, like, the conversation between the way sex workers is depicted in both is really interesting. In Midnight Cowboy, it's not really denigrated. It's seen as like naive to think you can do it like a lot of them a lot of the movie in midnight cowboy plays off john voight's naivete to think that he can just use sex to uh solve all his problems and he's running away from some trauma in his life and then this movie's about like you can use sex to succeed but ultimately you'll need something deeper at some point although that yeah. is probably a very shallow interpretation of this movie they're both and I mean, it's one a lonely is so man. eminently New York and one is so incredibly LA. Mm. I think they're just, they would be a really bummer of a double feature, but interesting <laughs> to do. So next Boppenheimer. Strangely refreshing to see this early on a sex worker like glamorized. You know what I mean? Like, I guess we're dealing with like a high end sex worker as opposed mm. to these movies which are mostly about, you know, people who are working on the Wait, streets or it's kind of- We're about to do Pretty Woman as well. Oh yeah, yeah that's we right. have a lot to talk oh, about yeah. sex work. Oh yeah, we're, Richard Gere, we're, we're chatting sex work. Yeah, I And very vastly different approaches to sex work. Quite, quite different take. So Gear goes back to his apartment and we see the perfect refined cool of his apartment. Diving is, board guy. Yeah, a diving board guy is great. He's seen oh. like three times. And he dives God, every he, time. God, he does a great dive. Does yeah. a great dive. And I've never seen an actor waiting for his cue more than diving board guy standing on the end of the diving board. <laughs> just preparing. He's perfectly still, and then you don't. Then you just hear, see. Well, in my mind's ear, I hear the director go, "And now do the dive." And then he does a beautiful dive. It's a beautiful dive into the thing. It is perfect. So we see this interesting art, interesting furniture. He's got taste. I um, love his apartment. His, his apartment is so good. I would I would die for his apartment. Yeah, I want to live in that. I want to be very clear. I know that this movie is about a fairly morally empty man, but I want his lifestyle. (laughs) Gia does upside down sit-ups and works out while practicing his Swedish. That is like made fun of a lot. I think it's from Mm -hmm. this, which then becomes a parody of like- It's in American Psycho as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it becomes like a parody of guy working out is hanging upside down and doing upside down sit-ups while holding weights. How cool are those ankle things that hold him up? Are are really cool. (laughs) I (laughs) was like- Wow. I had the note on this as like- the Mercedes I'm not- of workout gear. <laughs> I've never seen that in my life. I'm, I, I, well, I've seen it and it's in a, I think it's an Arrested Development where Buster gets stuck upside down in one of those contraptions. And I was like, I know that's not going to happen in this movie, but that would be funny if that's the next 15 minutes of gear slowly having blood run to his head as he tries to reach his toes. All I say is- in, in real in this- time. It's like 45 minutes of the movie. Weirdly enough, in this film, certain characters could have used those. I, yes. <laughs> I felt the same I had the same note. We'll get to it. 
Wait, what? Yeah, I'm see. so excited. You haven't um, thought of that. So I, also I will say they're, they're oh. like, the only way that you could use the ankle things uh, is if you were as fit as Richie Gere. If I did that, I'd be stuck there forever. <laughs> yeah, There'd 100%. be no way. So and they're pretty like cringy, but I went, cool. I'm, <laughs> that was I, probably not a good thing for me to think it was cool. I went, I'm not an exercise guy, but that looks bad for your neck. The yeah. exercise he's doing is so crazy because he's like bending his spine back whilst slowly curling these dumb balls. Like he's doing the butterfly upside down. Mm. That looks like the kind of 80s exercise where if any PT now saw it, they would have a heart attack. It mm. looks so uncomfortable. Whatever he's doing, it's working for it's him though. It's working. My next note is it is hard to describe how absurdly hot Richie is here. Then Leon James, who is played by Bill Duke, calls Gear and asks him to sub in for a job tonight. Gear's clearly working for both Nina Palant and Bill Duke as kind of co-respective managers, it's kind of expressed uh, very clearly that they don't own him exclusively. And that is part of why he's doing it is because he doesn't like to feel like he is possessed only by one person. He likes to feel like he's his own man and he just works for yeah, them. He's and the he's Richard- been hitting out on his own as well. That's the thing. Like there's been certain um, clients that he uses that he doesn't go through either manager with. Yeah. And that is a point of tension as well. Then after that, we see Gear at work. He's pretending to be a chauffeur for Kay Callan, one of his clients. He says he used to be a pool boy here. And this scene is just so good. You just see Gear slowly seducing this lady. And it's then she's- some real phallic champagne bottle work. Really good. And then she says, you are making me thirsty just standing there. That's really good stuff. She, she ends this scene by uh, saying, pour me a drink and set the bottle down. Yeah, like he's not allowed to drink. It's so good. That's really good. Um, She's great as yeah, well. Yeah, Kay Callan. I, I believe it's Kay Callan. Now we see Gia is at a restaurant after the gig. He's talking, I believe, to Nina Pallant on the phone, saying she loved the pool boy bit. He swapped his coat at the coat check. That's such a small little detail that you could miss very easily, and I saw it on my second time watching it. So he like it swaps coat and like yep. swaps out his character, basically, and that is fascinating and it's like a very important part of this movie is like he doesn't have a personality inside himself he only has characters that he places upon himself yeah the armani is armor i mean that's his public persona because in his house we see him shirtless so that's when he's truly bare when he's by himself behind um, closed doors Sorry. yeah that's right this is but true. That, that, that's, it's true but e- yeah even his like walk even his pursed lips even like the little bit of cocaine that he does later on all of it's a character nothing is real it's all a facade and he's still in character when he's by himself like that's the moment where he looks in the mirror and he goes yeah yeah "Yeah." oh we'll get to that so he walks into one of the reddest restaurants this side of that bathroom in the shining gear looks around for potential clients production design is great this is such. so we are going to talk about i believe his name is scarfiotti i apologize if that is an incorrect pronunciation um he is a italian production designer so Schrader actually talks about him, and I might actually just say that now. This is quite a long quote, so bear with me. When we did American Gigolo, we worked with the production designer of The Conformist, a man named Ferdinando Scarfiotti. He had begun working with Lucina Visconti on a lot of theatre work, and they did Death in Venice together. When they brought in Vittorio Storaro on The Conformist to do the cinematography, they had that troika. He's talking about the troika between production designer, director, and cinematographer. What's a troika? Just a three thing. A three thing, like a tripod. In my opinion, one of the most incredible visual troikas in the history of movies. The cinematographer of American Gigolo, John Bailey, mentioned The Conformist to me. There are all these TV shows that shot on location in Los Angeles. So for our film, we wanted to shoot Los Angeles with fresh eyes and make it different from what everyone else had tried to do with it. We tried to get Scarfiotti because we figured that if he came, he'd see LA in a new way since he'd never worked here. The Conformist was a synthesis of Godard's self-consciousness and the pictorialism of Visconti and Antonioni. What Bertolucci with Scarfiotti and Storaro did 
that Troika was combined the visually rich Italian tradition with the French intellectual tradition. After The Conformist, the three went on to make The Last Tango in Paris. We won't talk about it. Uh, and after Scafiotti did American Gigolo, they did Cat People together. We became friends and he's someone whose visual style has transformed me. So Scafiotti, this Italian production designer, one of the first, Schrader talks about it, like one of the first guys that was ever like production designer in terms of like the whole visual style of the film is his. Not just because previously, if you had a production designer, it was just for like epics and stuff like that. So it was just like oh. Lawrence of Arabia would have a production designer, oh. but like smaller films wouldn't necessarily. Fascinating. And so with The Conformist and um, Scarfiotti's work and that, which is a movie that I, I watched for this podcast and is like an incredible movie about fascism and Plato's cave and looks gorgeous. And a lot of it is Scarfiotti's work. So he was one of the first people to ever be like, I am taking control of costume, art and thing. And then the costume designer works under me. So everything kind of falls into this same thing. Mm. And in so American this would Gigolo- be the first Hollywood movie to have a production designer that is not an epic? Kind of, yeah. I'm amongst, sure, amongst them, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there is, I'm sure it's around that sort yeah, of time, yeah. but it's like- He's it, one of it's the one first. It's one of the first. And so you can see in American Gigolo, like every single element is constructed in a way. And it's interesting that he says like, oh, he's going to look at LA differently than everyone else. But then Scarfiotti comes in and basically defines the look of LA. Forever. And forever. Scarfiotti would come in, look at a restaurant and be like, great, strip everything out replace everything. Every color is selected. Every, you know, every coat in that coat check is selected because he just has a visual style. Shreddy talks about, there's a movie that they worked on later where there was a car underneath a car sheet. What do you call those? A car (laughs) Car cover. Maybe you're not a car guy. (laughs) Car guy just lost his car credits. (laughs) Give us your license. And Scarfiotti was like, scouring LA for an MG car. Cause he's like, there has to be an MG car. And Trader was like, we're not going to see the car. The car cover is over it. We're not going to see. And Scarfiotti was like, but you'll not. And I'm like that, that is I don't sick. know how I feel about that, but that's what's coming to this movie. That's how much kind of visual effort is going into this movie. Gia looks around for potential clients and he spots Lauren Hutton, who he thinks is French. Cause she was talking French to the waiter. He speaks quote unquote, perfect French to her. <laughs> Awful French accent by Richard Gia, but he does speak the French. They reveal that neither of them are French. They were just trying to be impressive. They were a facade that they put up in front of them in order to attract desire. Yeah, in order and then to she, be someone else for a second. Yeah, in her yeah. And then she says, "Oh, you fooled me." And then I said, "No, we didn't." <laughs> <laughs> Richard Gere sounds like me doing fake French. Yeah. After Michelle, who's played by Lauren Hutton, reveals herself to Julian, he immediately tries to get out of the conversation. He made a mistake. She has a husband, and this mistake actually seems to be what most intrigues him to her. He's not there just because he wants a fling. He's interesting to her because now he wants to get Mm. out of the conversation. His, oh, you have a husband reaction is Walter Matthau at the end of taking uh, taking a Pelham 1-2-3 big. I think Richard Gere is most of this film doing an incredible performance. Mm. I think he drops out of it into very weird, big choices uh, pretty much randomly. I agreed with you the first time I watched it. I was like, I think this movie's really, really good. I'm not sure about Gear's performance. Is it a little bit too much? And then watching it the second time, kind of with the whole movie in my head, watching it, I was like, oh, the too muchness is the point. I, like there, there is something, like it is the facade. It is the like, and I know that sounds like, you know, being It's the nice. kind of argument I can't make, you know, I can't <laughs> yeah, argue yeah, against. Yeah, yeah. It's the, oh, the floor is inherent. But yeah, I, yeah. I look, I think for me, the too muchness seems to come around in the genre moments. When this movie is about 
Richard Gere being sexy and him playing the gigolo, he's great. He picks up like the film noir parts of the movie. Yeah. I think weirdly he struggles with that more. I think he is good in the big moments and the small moments and then those transitions between I find quite clunky. However, this moment where he does a Walter Matthau level, she's married reaction, that I can't come up with any sort of expression for it. I assumed, and this whole interaction is actually really interesting to me, this whole scene, because I assumed that when he did the whole, oh, you're married thing, he was doing a bit like to her as in kind of being like, oh, gee whiz, you're married. Like, um, you know, and like kind of acting like over the top deliberately. So she'd be like, it doesn't matter. But then that's not what happens because immediately after. So I I was with you as well. It's funny because I think he just loses interest because he realizes that she's not going to be a potential client, right? Or his thing is it's too dangerous. Yeah. Uh, But I mean, people having husbands is a huge part of his job. He doesn't care about that. That is a large amount of who would hire him, people who are in loveless, sexless marriages, older women who are not satisfied. He talks about that Mm. openly and that's why he he enjoys his job because he prides himself on giving a moment of happiness to older women who have been – like that's actually a huge part of his character. Is it meant to be that he feels just such an intense romantic connection with her immediately that he (laughs) is actually disappointed that she's off the market? Seems – not super like I, I don't know if I love that moment in the movie, but it's wild because she they do they just roll with this whole narrative yeah. that they have such an intense connection that she's gonna borderline and by borderline I mean legitimately stalk him to get what she wants. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Mm. It's it's not him being like, You can't be my potential client because you're married. It's him being like, There is something here that I cannot explain that doesn't fit within my worldview. Yeah. And so I have to leave right yeah. now. I have to escape whatever is going 100%. on here because it's too fucking spicy for it's me. It's real and I don't yeah. understand. Well, this this is the scene where he says, you don't know who I am. And then she goes, who are you? He's like, I don't know who I am. You don't know who you are. And then he leaves. Which one, I was like, that's a bit condescending. Uh, Two. (laughs) You tell him. Take that American gigolo. Take that Julian K. You would not take that Julian K. You just met her. Come on, man. Yeah, he's kind of you, you he's s- kind of impolite. This you, guy, you s- you kind, he kind of sat down and negs her and then walks away. Well, I think he gets offended because I, I think that when she asks him how much, I mean, fair. for a fuck, he's yeah, he I says, think I don't when do he's that. showing his like not. real self, he's just got the same stuff that he gets professionally. And I think he's a bit like I think I think it's kind of makes sense to me that he's yeah. confused and gets a bit angry about it. Well, it is interesting that he says you don't know who I am, and then she goes, "How much for just a fuck?" That's like the thing that propels that moment into that moment yeah. Yeah. is that it's like, no, I know, I can tell you're a prostitute. I think she realises after that moment. He's, he says, mm. you don't know who I am, and she's, and that's what makes her figure it out because the same thing happens with Hector Elizondo later where yeah. he says, I don't think you're quite understanding what I'm saying, and then Elizondo goes, oh, okay, and puts a cigar in his mouth. Uh, um, I think that she knows the whole time in this scene. Mm. I think she knows exactly because they have a scene with her and her husband later where he's like, you know, like, you know what kind of guy. Like, I think that she yeah, is cluey yeah. onto that shit because she's involved in the, that kind of that world. world. But she's, yeah, so I actually think that she's entertaining that idea the whole way through but feels a connection as well. Three different interpretations of the same scene. That's what is it called? A tr- cinema. A tricold. A tricold. I like that. She asks how many languages he speaks. He says five or six and she responds plus the – international language, and he says, that's right. That's cinema, sign baby. language. Yeah, international sign language. Uh, <laughs> next day, Gia Sorry. is driving around again. He's got some very silly-looking sunnies, in my opinion. What? Uh, I think those sunglasses are slightly too big for his face, and They're it's the one flaw in the movie. They look so good. It was the first thing I mentioned. Sorry, what's the language in Arrival? 
The internet <laughs> speaks in circles, so he shoots out of his nipples with ink. <laughs> Plus the international language. Ooh. <laughs> uh, just some stuff from Arrival. I love that movie. Next Incredible day, Gear's driving around again. He drives to the job that he's subbing in for Leon. Whew, okay, we gotta take a shift off because immediately the vibes are off in this mm. scene. You have like the Marauder score just kicks underneath the whole thing. You see the husband, Brian Davies, um, wants to watch as Gear is physical with his wife. The wife seems weirdly drugged or something. Yeah. It's incredibly uncomfortable. And then there's this shot of Gear kind of as he's like trying to be tender. And then you just hear, you see this shadow of the husband in the corner of the room and he just says, slap her. And it's incredibly uncomfortable. Luckily, it doesn't linger on it particularly long, but it is this, um, yeah, it clues you into kind of uh, this world can be really inviting and, and sexy and fun and it can also be dangerous and scary and all of that Which stuff. Which is, we haven't mentioned that there's like a, and I know that you're going to argue with this because I think that there's obviously more to it than on surface level though, if you watch this movie, uh, Richard Gere's character is in very hesitant to interact uh, in gay tricks as opposed to like, I do think you could read this film as it kind of perpetuates it, like sex works okay if it's hetero. <laughs> like that's sort of, there is a little bit of that, but then the movie actually later on turns that on its head. But he does use uh, the F slur a lot in this movie. This movie and doesn't turn it on its head as much as you'd want. No, no, no. But you do you do see yeah, I, I think it just I, I think actually unfortunately ends up just being like sex work isn't good as actual like as opposed to it's not just we'll, the we'll like, get to it more when we yeah, start talking but, about Bill Duke properly, um, but that character is Problematic. One thing you can suggest and one thing it kind of got me through this movie a little bit is I think that inherently this movie is an exploration of masculinity. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about the different kinds of men, if we're talking about male clients who, let's be honest here, the major vast majority of sex work clients would be male. That's mm -hmm. kind of like that is how that works. So to have it's rare to have a gigolo who would specialise only in women. But I think that's kind of more of an exploration of the violence of some men and this is an example with this husband character who okay. comes in. So it's sort of the, you could argue it's showing the bleakness of that, of some like really kind of darker sort of and, and this one violence against women. In this scenario, it's still not okay to use the F slur now. And I think in the 80s though, I, I guess it makes sense as a product of its time. But it's also, I don't it's also know. Not, yeah, it's not providing a moral moral. Ju judgment on it but it's also not being like and this character's right for saying you yeah know, yeah, yeah sort totally of, like, it doesn't not, it's it's the thing of like the thing that you said earlier of like it like he's shown with this like a male fantasy life and i'm like that's really interesting because i think the movie is showing how um empty his life is and, oh, and no, how, no. how like chaotic it is an exploration of this man not a like moral judgment and just oh, no. because he uses slurs doesn't necessarily mean that the movie is saying and therefore that's good no, like, I, 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 no I agree with that yeah. but I also need to make it clear that I don't think that I think I'm I definitely agree that this is showing a man with empty life and it's mm. not but I think it gives like a facade of like I I have all the great thing like it kind of mm. it presents it in a way that it is a complicated conversation to have obviously this movie does you know it has a lot of f slurs in it it doesn't feel like any time he says it it doesn't feel normal when he says it and i don't know exactly what that is it feels like every time he uses an f slur it feels out of character it feels like a facade breaking for uh for him you know it shows a, a real internalized fear it does i i don't you, you can't forgive the movie all of its necessary trespasses in those sort of territories i think bill duke's character is particularly problematic in the way that 
homosexually coded villains is a very old and difficult thing to address. And the fact that the forces of sex work that are pushing gear to turn homosexual tricks ultimately, and spoilers for the whole movie here, the big bad of it is at the very least muddies the exploration of Richard Gere's character's sexuality. I think that is not helpful in terms of anything the film could be saying about internalized homophobia, which makes the another thing I was saying about the first half of this movie feeling, the first half of this movie feels very different to the second half to me. So here's the thing. Obviously, there are parts of this movie that are problematic, yeah. but it is about that. Yes. It is about those things. Yes. And it's not shying away from those things. And I think that doesn't make the movie itself, like maybe it's not ideal, maybe it's not perfect, but it's like, it's an ugly movie. Yeah, yeah, and I that don't ugliness disagree with is that. the point. And it's about an industry that was very much run in like underground illegal yeah. scenes, and people would be taken advantage of. And that is something that is really realistic. It's like not. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the point of the darker side of this sex industry, particularly in the 1970s but in America. On some level, equating the darker side of the industry, Bill Duke's uh, character sort of appearing as the more sinister side of the industry not, with I'm, queerness. I also don't think that, I think Anna, Anna Polant's character is also dark, and, but just in a much, a, a kind of much more sinister way in a, she, she uh, we will get into it, yes. but like she constructed him. Yeah. And that is interesting. It is, she it, it is stole sinister on both sides, yeah. but yeah, ultimately but there is a big villain of the movie and then sure. there's a- It suggested that he started his career path with Bill Duke's kind of, and then he got kind of adopted by, and they sort of suggested that, sure, and, yeah, and yeah. I guess that could be read as like, it's kind of suggested that it, there's the, the heterosexuality and that kind of like uh, is going to be a better life for him. Mm. I, I think that it is kind of in here, unfortunately, quite clearly coded that way, which sucks, I know, because it's kind of, again, it's like he says, I won't do F-bombs and kink stuff. He always puts that in the same sentence. So to him, he's equated that does yeah. that make sense and even the yeah it does and even the like general depiction of kink in this movie is a whole other conversation yeah it's kind of funny to me i, I know i know it probably shouldn't be but well, like, it's like it's like kind of um folksy in a way of like the way that it depicts kink as if it's some insane thing well, rather than just a way of life yeah kink is a whole other way of life that has also been not to the same degree as you know being queer but there has been like there's even conversations like does kink belong at pride like there is there is a whole other conversation you can have about the depiction of kink in cinema and how often it is just tied to violence and the difference between kink and violence and how that affected the kink scene and the sort of snake eating its own tail of those two things is also really complicated to talk about. So we cut to Bill Duke. He looks really young as well. It was like, yeah. oh, Bill. Like, uh, I mean, I've just, I, I don't think I've ever seen him yet. This young. He is another of Julian's managers. Julian is really pissed off at him. He says that last night was a rough trick. He doesn't want to do that shit again. And he says, I don't want to do the same thing over and over again. They get possessive. I can't be possessed. Very important for his character. Julian tells Leon that the reason he works for Anne over Leon most of the time is because she can get big, rich clients. He, she, he's getting, we find out, eight grand for this Swedish uh, lady that's that's coming in in a few mm -hmm. weeks. We come back to Julian's apartment. He's dancing around and picking out suits for himself. He's doing a little coke. And it is, uh, we talked about it last week, but in like taking a Pelham 123, it's like the process porn of like how a train works. And this is process porn of like selecting beautiful suits. All these constructions that he has for himself, all his suits of armor, his different characters surrounded by a tripartite mirror behind his bed. So the camera starts on gear and then racks focus to the reflection of himself in the mirror. Good 
good stuff. Perhaps saying this guy is not real. Michelle then, Lauren Hutton arrives at his place and he's really unhappy that she came there. This is my apartment. Women don't come here. Kind of an interesting read here is that, of course, women don't come here, but maybe he does have a private sex life beyond his work. Michelle really just wants to bone. I thought it would be easier to be with you, to cure you. Interesting. She brought money to pay for Julian's services and then says, I wanted to know what it would be like to fuck you. And no one has said I to fuck you better in a movie. I don't <laughs> think. I think she is so good at saying the word fuck. I also think that this is this is partly the premise of the entire movie is the audience being like, I want to know what it's like to fuck that guy. Mm. I think that's kind of like that's that's a really interesting part of the movie. Yeah. Another thing that I said is in, the, in this moment is uh, Richard Gere says bonsoir. Yes. In uh, absolutely hilarious. He says way. bonsoir and then bon chance, so he just knows good. <laughs> every every time he speaks French, I laugh. He's so he's good at a lot of things in this movie. He's very bad at speaking French. We cut to the next she day. Fully stalks him, which is yes, yeah, that is point. true. Um, I guess romantic in this movie. <laughs> this movie again, is standard. Again, it's not romantic. Oh. The movie is about how these people are kind of fucked up. I know, I know. <laughs> and obviously, I, I'm, I'm kidding. It's uh, it's obviously talking about power play in between yeah. these two people as well, which is like, who really has the power here? Yeah. And that's is. a whole thing about client versus sex worker versus yeah. like, because yeah, it's it's interesting. We cut to the next day. Julian and Michelle have woken up in bed. While she sleeps, Julian is on the phone to another client talking about himself masturbating as she slowly wakes up. He turns the phone off, is like, do you want to order breakfast or anything? And then turns the phone on and just keeps going. That's great. I saw, um, I saw a meme the other day, which was like, it's just like a paragraph from some sex team being like, oh my God, that's so hot. And then it cuts to the person in the meme who's just like eating cereal in bed. <laughs> <laughs> just like <Yeah. laughs> in a Snuggie. And it's like, oh, that's how Richard Gere lives in this yeah that's that's how he approaches sex as like this is a like thing that is very easily easy comes really Mm. easily for him purely transactional can do this like and turn Mm. that on but not just be completely disinterested also, does he get room service in his apartment? Does he yeah. live in a hotel? Is so that what it is? hotel apartment. Cool. Because he, yeah. it's That's my dream, honestly. I, no, Charlie. This, is, this has been Seamus' dream since, like, we have talked about this probably since I've known you. If you've been like, all I want to do is live in a hotel and have a shower that's just like a flat square and rains on me. That's exactly how you I want to live, live my life. You want to live in the apartment from Old Boy. Yeah. Very badly. The bad guy from Old Boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, want to live no. in that place except with more room service <laughs> and a better term. Turn down system. <laughs> I truly also would love to live in a hotel with room service. That would be fucking outstanding. I would not. I think that's crazy. <laughs> um, Julian is with another client. We see him, an older lady, and they are discussing furniture. Uh, Richard discussing- Gear should host Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> that is. <laughs> Very true. And it kind of, it, it's very quickly showing that Julian really knows what he's talking about, even with antiques. Like anything that he is required to do, anything that he is required to know about, he can learn on the fly. He's really, really good at it. He's like, don't get this piece. It has glue in it. And then his client sees a high society lady that she hates. And Julian goes into an offensive queer European stereotype and insults the high society lady. Mm. Richard Gere puts on a silly voice to try and deal with awkward situations, just like me. <laughs> Next 
next day, Julian reads in the newspaper that the client that he had a few nights ago, the one with the weird husband watching, has died or been murdered. While he reads, Michelle comes back to him, begs him to have sex with her again. He doesn't really want to get involved, but eventually he acquiesces. And now we come to the single and only sex scene in this movie. It's all limbs and single parts of the body. It's his hands on boobs, kind of almost disambiguated from anything else. Her hair flowing over his back, like they're separated from each other. Each individual body part is its own thing to look at, never one cohesive whole. Yeah, there's like a lot of angles where I'm like, what is that depicting? Like her leg up this way with his arm yeah, like with wrapped his arm around. Like I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, yeah, it's the idea of like, it's sex as object. It's sex as voyeurism, like basically rather than sex as the the act of it. Yeah. It's mm. not showing them have sex kind of at all. In my notes, I said this uh, sex scene is filmed like a Dutch commercial for soap. Yes. <laughs> is it? So we're supposed to like, hear me out on this one because- I feel like their emotional connection is meant to be a part of this film, right? Or like, 100%. So this sex scene is not intimate in any way, shape, or form. Correct. But I think we're meant to believe that he feels some sort of level of intimacy that he doesn't feel from sex I think, with his clients. I think it's they talk about it later where she's like, I love having sex with you, but when we're having sex with you, you're not with me. Anymore. I love right. holding you. I love kissing you. No, 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 no. She says, I love it when you hold me. I love it, I love when, it when you kiss, kiss me. me. But when, yeah, when we sex. fuck, you're, not, you're, you're at work. You're yep. at work. Gotcha. You go to work. Gotcha. This is his POV. Their intimacy yep. actually has That's nothing to do with sex, despite her being largely there at the beginning for the sex. Perfect. Yeah. Um, uh, have you seen My Own Private Idaho? No. no. It's Gus Van Sant film starring Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix. And it is a There's a lot happening. It's a Shakespeare retelling of Henry IV, I believe. Um, mm. And it is basically Keanu Reeves plays that Henry character who leaves his like rich life to go and be a hustler basically in New York City. And there is a sex scene in there that is all just it's it's actually even less even more so still so it suddenly just goes into like photographs of them just in poses kind of thing and i wonder cool. there is absolutely probably similar kind of inspiration done from this film whether or not it's i couldn't find gus actually saying that but you're kind of like interesting well the the scenes from this are very very influenced by Brisson's articulation of um, pickpocketing in Pickpocket. Mm. So we will get right. we will get we will get really into Pickpocket later. It's kind of interesting how this movie is related to Pickpocket, but this sex scene is like all of that like sliding hands and all of that is just Brisson. Post coitus, um, they chat and Julian says, "You made love to me, so you know everything about me," which is an interesting thing. He refuses both both the movie refuses and and he refuses to Michelle's character to ever actually reveal anything about himself. Mm -hmm. She says, where are you from? And he says, I'm from this bed. Um, that's kind of, which that's is, my answer. <laughs> that's your answer, but it has nothing to do with sex. Absolutely it's just about lying not. down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very importantly, we see Richard Gere's penis. He stands up and stands up against the window, these caged lights. That caged light thing, the kind of um, Venetian, blind. Venetian blind light thing is pretty much stolen from the conformist. But it is also um, the most noir, noir thing yeah, possible. hundred percent. Which is also interesting in context of him having no past. It's a very like detective haunted by his past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lonely like, man. An interesting point in the, in the history of full frontal male nudity in cinema. Yes. A thing that I found a lot about this is like, oh yeah, this is the first big one. This is the first Hollywood movie to have full yeah. frontal male nudity. And then like the next big ones, Bruce Willis and then Ewan McGregor in Pillow 
talk, I think it is, or the pillow man. I love that you just have this ready, ready to go in your head. Well, you're, yeah, you're and then it, like, it takes rare. a gap and then it comes to shame. Yeah, and then Michael recently, Fassbender. Matt, Chris Pine, even recently, is like getting a lot of like- in Dungeons and Dragons? Honor <laughs> 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 Among Peens? <laughs> we- it is still shocking, not shocking. It's still like actually notable when there is full, fa- full, fa- full, fa- full, fa- sorry, full, full frontal male nudity <laughs> yeah. from a well-known actor. Yeah. Well, my first little question of the podcast: <laughs> What? <laughs> what was the first? What was <laughs> the first dong you saw out? on screen? Oh, okay. Uh, um, I I can't think of anything earlier than um, Jonah Hill's fake penis in Wolf of Wall Street. I'm sure I did see one earlier than that. Shame was earlier than that. Yeah. But for, like for you? Mine's, I, I, I didn't watch. Is mine I Borat? I, I haven't seen Borat. It's is Borat. He, wow. Yeah. Life. Does he get his dong out in Ali G? Don't know. <laughs> but definitely Borat, that. there's that wrestling scene where they both mm-hmm, have mm-hmm. their, like it's quite a lot. And, it's very, and I remember it was kind of groundbreaking for that extended ridiculous re- male-on-male <laughs> wrestle scene that just showed like yeah, right. it went on for ages. Uh, mine's, and this, this is when I kind of why I did this research. Is because <laughs> <laughs> so weird that mine was a uh, Life of Brian, which came out seventy nine. Yeah. Oh, actually, that's hundred yeah. percent. Because in too. Life of Brian, he opens the window yeah, after yeah, having sex with weird. Mary Magdalene stand in, mm-hmm. and his dong is on full show, framed above the windowsill, and then everyone in Jerusalem sees it. It's hilarious, mm. and I was like, "Wow, it is so weird that that movie came out, and all the controversy is about it being blasphemy." Like, there's barely anything on the Wikipedia page about full frontal male dong. Maybe it's edited differently for the original release. There was so they were so in England. They were so much more concerned about this depiction of Jesus that they didn't even have time to get upset about the depiction of De- Jesus's dong. Yeah, well, it's not. It's famously not Jesus. Yeah, it's Brian. Dong. It's Brian's dong. Yeah. <laughs> If it was Jesus' tongue, then they'd have a problem. <laughs> yeah, it's still, to this day, if it does happen, it's big news. What's great is, Richard Gears talked about this, as like, it wasn't like, it wasn't Complete. planned or anything. Yeah. He just stood up in the shot and was and was nude. But I think that's interesting because he like steps up and frames his own leg perfectly so that his penis is very easily seen. I think Gear know what he do. <laughs> oh, 100%. <laughs> that's, a, that's a man that knows how to frame his own penis. Do you think we would have had- I mean, his own penis gets framed in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> this film is most notable for the full frontal male nudity. I think most people think about it as for that as well. Like mm. it's a hugely prolific thing. But um, I wonder if we would have had it if we had Christopher Reeve or John Travolta. I, don't, I, I think there's I no don't way. Think so so uh, Richard Gere explains how he spent. They're kind of talking about why he does the things that he mm-hmm. does, and he explains how he spent three hours working to give a woman an orgasm. That's why he likes older women. It's a challenge. I felt like I'd done something, something worthwhile. Who who else would have taken the time? Um, that's kind of his kind of philosophy around why he does the work that he does. Yeah, and this is one of the things where it's like it does give sex work some did, uh, dignity. It, it gives pleasure of women in particular in this movie a legitimate value. Yeah, absolutely. Which is unusual for films of the time. Totally. Yeah. Then we have Elizondo time. Detective Sunday, and we see he is interviewing the husband of the wife that was murdered, Ryman, I believe his name is, and he says, your private sex life is of no concern to me or to the LAPD. Immediately, Elizondo is the opposite of gear. He's balding, his shirt doesn't fit him, he has an ugly brown tie that's slightly too long, and he's drinking from an ugly brown mug and holding a huge cigar. I don't think I've ever seen more intense cigar acting from a single performer. And how... 
annoyed I was that it wasn't lit for a large Yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not lit. Also, it's like green, yeah. which yeah. I'm sure is like a, a production design thing of like, it is kind of an ugly, the use of the color green in this movie is very interesting when it's used and how. His cigar is is like a weird mottled green. Mm. And it looks chewed on and gross. And it's like such an obvious, like uh, he is a version of masculinity chewing this phallic thing mm. that gear is kind of like not at all um for anyone who's counting at home that is 40 minutes and 53 seconds a very late entrance elizondo elizondo then goes to visit gear i've written elizondo is so good he's so affable and friendly so scary with just a hint of insidiousness they go out for coffee detective sunday wants to know if julian has an ally alibi for a specific tuesday gear does but it was with one of his clients and she may not want to reveal to the police that she was with him elizondo promises that he's not going to book julian for any of his work or any of the drugs or anything that he does he just wants to know about the ryman murders we also see my favorite character diving guy again we do see <laughs> Diving guy again very briefly in that scene. I love Hector in this movie a lot. I think, yeah. I think so Sunday good. is is fantastic. It's perfect casting because of the way he does it, the way he like, kind of is abs- absolute foil, the complete opposite Gears character. You get a sense that this person is is a, but still like a bit more real reality kind of base. And it's it's very interesting that um, Hector Elizondo is from New York. Mm-hmm. Like it's mm. very much the like if LA is everything that is fake. He is like the opposite of that. He is the gritty reality of masculinity. I think this performance is unbelievably good. I was like, man, I you know, this entire podcast, this entire miniseries is about how prolific and great Hector Elizondo's career has been. Watching this, I'm like, it could still be bigger. This man deserves like a f- this guy, this man deserves an Oscar-winning role. Like he was so yeah, 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 good in this. Uh, he's probably got a total of about 15 minutes screen time. He's captivating every uh, second he's on screen. And he's got one scene that we were talking about that is brilliant. But I think um, this scene is cool because I, I don't know about you guys, but do you think that Detective Sunday believes it? he has found the one immediately? Because I kind of think that in this scene, I think he, as much as we're talking about him being like real, this kind of thing, I think he's putting up this area. I, I think he thinks he's guilty as fuck from the get-go. Yeah, I and think that I think that's I kind think of implied so. later. It is definitely implied later that he's like, yeah, I think you're guilty. Um, I also think Hector I think Sunday is doing the same thing. He's constantly playing characters. He's playing yeah. characters around Well, his affability and his like friendliness and his like the way that he kind of lures Julian into kind of a false sense of security. Friendshipy. And and, and, yeah, the moment when he um, replaces his suit jacket and like he's like, hey, I'm going to be the new you. Like that's the kind of genius of that character. This character is like stripped from Pickpocket. So the character in Pickpocket is a a pickpocket. (laughs) Are you you with me? (laughs) He becomes friends with a police detective, but they have this weird kind of philosophical kind of relationship. That's the thing that Schrader talks about of that, like French intellectual kind of thinking. And there is a conversation later on. And even this conversation, which is kind of a direct parallel to uh, those conversations in pickpocket. In pickpocket, Brisson is talking about like, is pickpocketing worthy and moral or is it completely immoral and being like, hey, maybe there's a gray area there. It's the same sort of conversation that Elizondo and Gear have here where they're talking about, but sex work is illegal 
And Gia's like, yeah, but that doesn't mean it's immoral. And that's the whole premise. Yeah, Yeah, that conversation comes a little bit later, but it is a great scene from the movie. So then we cut to see Senator Charles Stratton. He's making a speech about fossil fuels. Julian is there with a client, and it turns out that Michelle, Lauren Hutton, is married to Stratton. She's very, very surprised to see Julian there. She probably shouldn't be. She probably should be like, well, I'm probably going to see him at one of these things. But finally it is revealed that her husband is this very kind Mm. of high up senator. Julian's date for this particular scene keeps on calling him a comer. Which yes. is an insult I have never heard so in my life. I, I, what does that mean? Yeah. No earthly I, I idea. I think it's like up and comer. Like it's right. like it's like a uh, social climate, which is what Julian is. Like, yeah. I think that's I think that's mm. what it is. But I it think also he, could be. I think he, he covers shoot, everything in jizz. Yeah, I think he shoots his load at a butterfly passing. <laughs> it was so funny. Um, <laughs> I love the interaction he has where he walks away, and the senator says to old mate, "He's like, you know." You know who he like. Yeah, you well, know who he, he is, is yeah, right? Yeah. Like it's it's an interesting like power dynamic. Like a or oh, like a, it's it's great. It's a yeah. tiny interaction, yeah. but you really understand exactly who this senator. Know what is. kind of man he is? And a he's comer. obviously he's preaching like for <laughs> to be like to help the working class. You so know, he's I, a, that yeah. is so interesting to me that he's being like we as all the rich people of Los Angeles and California have to band together to stop all of the fossil fuels and like it's clearly this like completely fake and bullshit. It's like he is made of paper. Like mm. much like Julian, he is like nothing behind those eyes. Like mm. he is just a uh, a spouting kind of uh, font of bullshit. So then we see Gia is next day or a couple of days later is walking down Sunset. I think it's Sunset Boulevard. It might be Rodeo Drive. Mm, I'm not familiar enough with the streets of LA. He's walking down a street. He's being followed. It turns out to be Michelle. She's this. wearing a cute little hat, which I really, really like. Um, I he, love her jumper. He, I, do, yeah, I do love her jumper. Uh, he, goes into a, <laughs> he goes into a record store and surprises her, pretending to bump into her. They both keep pretending that they weren't like planning to see each other. They haven't seen each other. And it's this like thing of like, yeah, there's, there's even, even within this small moment, there is a separate facade that they both put on. Michelle and Julian then chat over a drink about her husband. She explains that she can't leave her husband because of political reasons, basically, because it would would shame him. Um, Julian tries to convince her that she's become a shadow of her political husband. She says, what can I do? I don't know, be yourself, which is such an interesting thing for him to say, Mm. um, who has the guy that has lost his sense of self completely. Elizondo is also following them. He comes upon Julian at a shoe shining place. Now we get to the scene that I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. He tells him that his alibi doesn't cover him for the time of the murder, pretty clearly implying that Mrs. Williams, who he was with, lied to save face that she wasn't with him the whole night. So Mm. like she, she, Mrs. Williams told Elizondo that he left uh, by seven, he left at seven o'clock. And then Elizondo wants to know how Julian picks up all these women. And there's this wonderful thing where Richard Gere just destroys him. First, first, obviously you dress for shit. What's wrong with your back? This like thing where he's like the chin, you got to work the chin. What are you doing? <laughs> it's so great. And they both start like giggling. Yeah. Like Elizondo's like laughing. He's like, ah, I don't know. I've let myself go. I fucking loved yeah. this scene. It's, so it's interesting though, because it's like the chemistry between these two is great. Like mm. between yeah. Rich and, and Elizondo. It's interesting and that it kind of has the same like dangerous energy of like, there's clearly a power imbalance here, but yeah. it's like, that's what we're playing with and it's what we're having fun with. Like, and when yeah. he tells him, to, he takes a seat and then he, Pretends that he's gonna. He goes, yeah. If you just want to give a shine on this shoe, like yeah, he's gonna yeah, shine yeah. his yeah. shoes. But it's interesting. There's a power dynamic here because you, you think the reason that Hector could be laughing as that character is because he clearly thinks that he's above the sex worker. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But like, but the sex worker is acting like he's above the cop. So it's this weird kind of like. Obviously, it goes goes back and forth, and you kind of. 
don't really know what like where I don't, do you know where the film stands on that? No idea. I would watch the buddy cop version of this movie in a minute rather than Hector being after Julian. Oh, what about the whole thing's more of a cat and mouse? It's like make make Richard you want to watch like, Heat. I no, I want to watch like Catch Me If You Can, but it's right. these two. <laughs> no, I want to watch Rush Hour, but it's these two. <laughs> I mean, sure. <laughs> so they have this kind of the scene kind of separates into two parts because the first part is them kind of having a really good time, and then as you say, Elizondo sits down, and then they make a joke about he's going to shine his shoe, and then Detective Sunday shows Julian a picture of the dead body mm-hmm. and the whole shift just kind of, the whole scene mm. just kind of freezes. Elizondo describes that he knows that he handcuffed her 48 hours earlier. The thing I've written is like the difference in Elizondo's body language from goofing around to going in for the kill mm-hmm. is just like, just like some of the, 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 the like small acting moments that you just love, simply love to see. Julian then arrives back at his apartment to find it's been ransacked by the police. He realizes at that moment that it looks like he's getting framed for this murder. Mm-hmm. There's something going on here. People have been talked to. He is being framed. He goes back to Anne, his other manager. He tells her that she, he thinks he's being framed um, and wants her to find out for him. She doesn't want to do that without him coming back to work for her exclusively. She says, I made you, Julie. I taught you how to dress, how to behave, how to treat women, how to make love. He is or was at some time a creation of this woman's desire. Mm. Uh, And then he says, things are different now. I'm more than what I used to be. That's really interesting because that to me says like it's because of the Leon stuff and like because now he has these high society things and like he perceives himself as being greater than just this creation that Anna, Anna does. But I don't think the movie necessarily agrees with him. More exciting, that's, that scene ends with her saying, you didn't, you did it, didn't you? The Ryman killing. And he doesn't respond. Yeah. And I fully thought, I, I, I like reeled back in my seat at that moment when I was like, oh my God, did he do? And then no. No, he didn't. But the, the he fact that he doesn't no. respond, he, he can't say no, because, but also because he feels the complicity. He feels complicity in the murder. Mm. He feels like he's the sort of man that might actually do yeah. that. And that is fascinating. It is a, it is an excellent moment. Uh, and also, it I feel like another double factor is that she believes, that if she believes that he could do that and is still willing to work created with him, him and create him and be fine with it. That's super sinister. And, th- and that's and exactly that what I'm saying about, like, I, I don't necessarily disagree with you on the Bill Duke stuff, but it's not like the two halves of sex work are like heterosexual sex work, which is good, and homosexual sex work, which is bad. I don't think this movie is, like, I don't think I don't this think, movie is I think really- it's suggesting there's a high, there's a ladder to climb that that's sort of in there, but then at the end it's all kind of, like, depend, like I think it ends the, up the, being all like This a world is dangerous tale. and these people are manipulative and yeah. Los Angeles is a manipulative place. Yes. And, if you ever, mm. and if you are a social climber, if you are, you know, we don't, know anything about this character but we assume he was not born rich and so if you climb up the ranks of of however you do it it is dangerous and those people will fuck you like yeah. and that's the that's, that's the point. that's the kind of world that this fucking but, um, th- yeah. unfortunately there is obviously like you, depictions of like we'll talk about the gay club scene where it's like he descends into like the pits of the like, you know, like, like that kind of we'll get level to, like yeah we'll you, get to that kind of, it is problematic in that way but i do understand what you're saying and i think that that is a reading that works really well for this film too. Um, mm. We go back to his apartment. Michelle and Julian are practicing Swedish. They're making out. Julian goes to have sex, but Michelle stops him. Um, she says, what we said before, when you make love, you go to work. I can't give you any ple- pleasure. And then he says, yeah, I know, which I think is kind of devastating. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
the apartment suddenly has a green hue to it as Julian's identity becomes unraveled, um, and then he tells Michelle that he's being framed. There's a sequence in this bit where he walks around his kitchen island and out into the green Venetian blind lit neo noir side of the set. Like yeah. it goes from it goes straight from like the Bojack Horseman glitzy LA side to the neo-noir bit. And I think as Richard rounds that kitchen island, his acting goes from impeccable <laughs> to the hammiest thing I've ever seen in the world. <laughs> He's great. He gets so, he, I, he gets so parody noir in that moment that that was the bit where I was like, that's what's happening. He's really good at one genre in this movie. He is hilarious in the other. So wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, then we cut to the police lineup. I love this scene. I love this and scene. Jul- right. Julian is standing it and convinces one of the other guys at the lineup that he's getting paid for it. And it's a very funny scene. And then <laughs> he's like, I'm getting paid 15 bucks for this. Are you not getting paid? You're getting f- screwed. Like <laughs> The wino's um, getting 20. Yeah, the wino's getting 20. Great. Um, my favourite bit of that scene is dumb. It's like, turn to your right. And then that guy <laughs> turns the wrong way. And I love it. It's so dumb. It made me laugh. Just- my my favourite bit for that scene is that it's, Richard Gere, tucked in shirt, looking great, and then the four frumpiest men on earth. And it's like you and me. Yeah, <laughs> like- it's, it's, it's like you and I, if we'd been put through a tumble dryer briefly before the scene. Elizondo then interviews Julian again after that and says, you were identified in the lineup. But the start of that scene is Detective Sunday has actually bought a new suit jacket and he's like, huh, I'm going to steal your thunder, um, which is really, really good. He's like, you've been identified in the lineup. The maid of the Rymans identified you, but then she went back on it afterwards. Yeah. And that's that's the same thing as before of like, he is and isn't like the murderer, like mm. at all times in this movie. Is this the scene where Richard Gere asks him if he thinks that he's guilty? Because so this is the best sa- line. He says, and what do you think? And Elizondo says, I think you're guilty as sin. I think you went to the Ryman's. I think you did a trick, played some rough games, either got drugged or stupid or both. I think you beat, killed her and stole the money and jewels. Elizondo destroys home run after home run. And that's so good because it starts. He goes, what do I think? It's like it's upbeat. And then he says it with just such like this, oh, like. Disdain. Disdain. And you you see just what he thinks of. Yeah, of Richard Gere. The turn of (laughs) Hector Elizondo, the man, thinks of Richard Gere, the man. Um, This is a great performance. Yeah, the turn from the top of the scene, which is the fun little bit play of the jacket, through that and then returning to don't fuck with my lineups next time. Other cops don't find it as funny. Like it is a, for Hector, I I think he's incredible in taking, uh, taken. Um, (laughs) The movie Taken. And I have not seen Pretty Woman but I will be astounded if I can see anything top this scene. It yeah, is- it is a pretty wonderful performance. I think what he's saying when he's like, don't tell people you're getting paid, some cops don't like it, is it's he's being like, I'll fucking kill you if you yeah. do that again. Yeah. Like he's being like, don't you ever fuck with me like that. Yeah, like- but deliver it as like this fun little goofy ender scene. <sighs> Julian goes back to Mrs. Williams to try and convince her to tell the truth to the cops and confirm his alibi. And as soon as she opens the door, she's like not happy to see him whatsoever. We get like the difference here between how these people perceive him when he is hired by them and how these people perceive him when he is just another man on the street and like, Mm. and is asking something of them. Um, Which he's been forewarned. Will happen. Yeah. But uh, I think that Bill Bill Duke, no, earlier on, and this is super important, has been like, you think that you've gotten, like you in this, he's like, the minute that anything goes wrong, they will drop you like, like, and they will treat you like Mm. the the object that they fucking think you are. Like you're not in as safe a position that you think you are. That's a whole point of this Mm. movie. 
At this point, I wrote in my notes, I wonder if this movie will end with all the women he's pleasured coming together to testify in court to save him. <laughs> I would love that. Like You uh, have a special little brain. <laughs> Lincoln, that's what happens. That, uh, Only one of them <laughs> But that is, what, that is the ending of this movie. Uh, <laughs> so then, uh, sorry, Mrs. Uh, Williams. Yeah, it's also no. not quite what No, it's, it's not, not quite what Both of you. They don't testify. I'm not as wrong. <laughs> I'm not as wrong as we may have thought. <laughs> Her husband, uh, Mrs. Williams' husband comes down and I wrote, he kind of looks like Charles Grodin. He looks like an older Charles Grodin. And he says, I know that you weren't here because I was here with my wife the entire right, time. So clearly they've talked about it and they're like, we want nothing to do with this. I know because it's interesting. You think that she'd be trying to hide it from her husband. That she, but it's like, not even that. It's like save public face. Yes, it's like they, exactly. We know that our marriage is fucked. Like, it's probably like, yeah. a, you know, like it's, Which a, is it's interesting. Happening constantly in this movie. Yeah. Everyone knows they're unhappy. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe not. Maybe they're just polyamorous. You know, maybe that does not. That's not the vibe of that scene there, Linklater. <laughs> that is. That does not appear to be the vibe of what's happening. Uh, Julian is walking back down the boulevard. Um, this time, he's being followed by a guy from Charles Stratton's campaign. There's a really cool dolly shot here, which is following gear, and then like tracks back through the street and it's like mm. empty frame, empty frame, empty frame, catches up with the lackey and then comes back. That's from The Conformist I found out, kind of. It's kind of, I think it's better in this. I think it's a better version of that shot. Is made 10 years later with probably a better dolly. This lackey, I love him. Great performance. Great performance. He's so pathetic. Kind of handsome. Sure. I absolutely. think he looks like a like an LA Donald Gleason. We get the sense that like Julian's really feeling the heat here. This is where he starts to un- unravel a little bit. Um, he slams him up against a poster for the Warriors. This and- confused me for so <laughs> long. I was like, "What is that? What is it? Because it's so. It has to mean something. It has, it has to, to be to. something." And I was like, "Okay, Warriors, famously a New York film. Sure, like you know, set in New York or set in a version Did of Trader New York. Did Trader write it? Uh, no. And I think that it's kind of about." I guess you could say it's about like uh, a, ma- a group on the run. Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, it is, um, oh, I was literally just looking at it, it was Walter Hill. Schrader and Walter Hill used to be friends. Yeah. So maybe it's like an inside joke. Yeah. like a, But also I guess you could talk about, you know, like famously from the Warriors, come out, come out wherever you are. And, you know, that nowhere to run. To, and they're like literally getting chased all around. Like it's like there's nowhere to run. Yeah. You could, you could if you're a big fan of the Warriors, which I am, you could go <laughs> – He's got nowhere to run. He's got nowhere to baby, run, baby. Nowhere to hide. See, my my note on this <laughs> scene. Me. My note on this scene, which was completely different, was no man who wears suits that expensive carries around a sharpie in his pocket. That's a real. That's a really good point. Yeah, because he pushes Donald Gleason up against the wall. Does he take it from Donald Gleason? No, he pulls it out of his. Pulls it out of his pocket. He shoves him against the wall and writes. What does he write? He writes his Snitch. phone number. Oh, he writes his <laughs> phone number. <laughs> Snitch? What? That's from Harry Potter. I was so distracted. (laughs) I was so distracted thinking about where he got a pen that I didn't notice. That is from the Order of the Phoenix. We write snitch on someone's forehead? Well, if someone snitches out Dumbledore's army and she ends up with like a cursed snitch on her forehead and pimples. Like the subway guy that wrote subway on his forehead. (laughs) He got it tattooed. Wait, is that, is that Subway? It's a different brand, I think. Who it was like Adidas or something? Got Adidas tattooed on there. Anyway, that's what that reminded me of. Wow. Uh, okay, <laughs> who needs a sharpie? You know, to so he slams it up against. He's got to give his number to everyone. Writes his phone number on his forehead and says, "If Stratton wants to talk to me, he can come and find me. He can call me at this number." So Stratton. Then we see him meeting with Julian. Stratton tells him to leave his wife alone. We see the sickening green hue is back. It's everywhere now around this garden party. Gear says. I'm seeing Michelle because I want to see her and because she wants to see me. 
Stratton threatens to tear down Julian's whole career, calls him a hanger-on. And this is the kind of moment where you see, like, him being called a hanger-on, I think, is what kind of destroys him. Mm. Kind of destroys his internal house of cards. (laughs) Because he's watching the TV show, the Netflix show, House of Cards, inside himself. I'm sorry, I just need to go back to the snitch moment. (laughs) Um, No, no, no. But I love that actor's... That actor doing a great job of just being really resigned to the fact that he's getting the number. Like, and then he oh, sucks. Yeah. He's just like, and then he falls oh, over. Like man. he, he <laughs> oh, tries to walk away and immediately yeah, stacks so it. Good. Can you give him a little kick no. in the bum, or did I just imagine oh, that? No. He just stacks it. It's what really snitch that he kicks him in the bum. Yeah, apparently, I disassociated when I watched this because he pulled out a sharpie and I was like, Giorgio Armani pants. No, you would, and then did not watch the rest yeah. of the movie. Uh, it has a happy ending. <laughs> so then, Gear goes to see Leon at the gay club probe, which is a real uh, LA nightclub. Oh, because um, I and- said that this scene looks like it was uh, filmed in spare set from <laughs> Jabba's palace. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, it, it would be interesting if that is the actual internal uh, thing of probe. I, I know that like that, that is a um, LA, LA nightclub mm. and the at the exterior is that is that LA nightclub wow. but I wonder if the interior if Scafriotti was like no 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 let me get my hands on this let's let make it look like a space station yeah it kind of makes it look like a German expressionist sort of like uh, set <laughs> that that sort of vibe um, my other note in this scene was like this gay uh, this gay nightclub looks terribly underattended that is the other th- weird thing is that there is not heaps of extras in this scene which I think think is like i mean you could take it as like oh it's late at night people are like not everyone is out either yet or they've gone home but i i think it's just a budget thing i think it's exclusively like paul schrader doesn't make movies for a lot of money he doesn't have money for a lot of extras yeah maybe Um, also it's a smaller scene due to the fact that people are closeted particularly at this time yeah so i think that like it's it's like probably gonna be and everyone seems to know everyone in this club as well and but everyone's leaving like five feet between each other like there's room for jesus to like squeeze in there sure that could be a budgeting thing but it also could be like obviously it's a smaller scene because we have people recognizing julian yeah, true. true. Uh, well, he goes there to find the person he knows is going to be there. You know, I like do it's love a, that it's everyone a, knows him. Yeah, but this is, I mean, that's the most fascinating line in it is when he says, Julie, baby, homecoming. It's in like you're coming back home yeah, here. Yeah, like yeah. this is where he, we now know like this is where, where he, he started up. That's really interesting. his career. This is where um, he started. I also, sorry, just to go back on the point of like everyone knows him, it's every single service worker he is friends with. Like every waiter, every coat check girl, every like the- The concierge at his at, hotel. At his hotel. He is friends with all of them. That's such an interest. That's such Good a choice. beautiful detail of like, you don't get anywhere without being like, cool and charming to everyone and having a, and like he tips later, he tips a guy under the table is obviously so smooth at tipping. Like, and and it feels very much like also it is one of the hints at his roots. A hundred percent. Yeah. And also I think that he views his job as hospitality as well. Yeah. So he he says like we're co-workers in that regard. It's like I'm providing a service uh, and you are also providing a service, which I'm using and respect each other. Mm. Uh, he meets with Leon and asks him to offer him an alibi in exchange for a trick. Next day, Michelle comes to talk to Julian. This scene starts with him reflected in a frame of one of his paintings in the apartment. And I wrote, subtle. <laughs> Michelle has been asked by her husband to leave for two months. She's going to Rome. There is this great scene where they're like wandering through a park in LA and they're kind of, it's kind of almost melodramatic the way they're mm. like turning around trees and it's like very kind of old Hollywoody. It does end with a line with all my life I've been looking yeah. for something and I don't I don't know what it is. Maybe you are what I was looking for. Yeah. Which is 
kind of the tackiest line in this entire movie. Yeah, except for the final line of the movie, which I think is also really tacky. Incredibly yeah. tacky. I think I think that's good actually. Like I think I think that is the We need like a little ding that goes off every time you use the phrase I think that's good actually. <laughs> I think it is purposeful that those lines are melodramatic and large and about something greater than kind of what the movie is kind of focusing on. Yeah. Like there is a melodrama and a grace to those kind of like big lines that is referencing a kind of different style of movie, which like you could argue that like Julian is like aspiring to, or like maybe reaches at the end of the movie. Anyway, that's why I think there's some juice to that. Although I do agree that it stands out. Um, a character I've written a character out of control now in search of purpose and attaching it to this woman. Julian walks back to his apartment building and sees Leon's new boy. We set that up in the club scene that Leon has a new new boy that he's kind of uh, uh, parading, parading around. around. Who could fully be John Voigt from? Um, uh, yes, I wonder if that is purposeful from uh, from Midnight Gigolo. Midnight, Midnight Gigolo. Gigolo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Midnight oh, Cowboy. Oh. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Don't go into that. Um, who was at the club? Uh, who was at the club the previous night? Um, he's getting into his car and is immediately very suspicious. Julian runs up to his apartment and starts tearing it apart, becoming more and more agitated as Moroda's score goes off mm. and the slatted lighting ensnares around gear. The green light now fills almost every corner of his apartment. He smashes his pots and his beautiful stereo and all of his belongings. Mm. Finally, he tears up the last part of him that was truly important: the construct that held his identity together, his Mercedes. He finds the jewels that were planted there. He was framed. Did you love, because I just feel like I'm seeing a sensing of pattern, um, we really see him check everywhere. Like we actually have a full-on extended sequence. We see him check literally everywhere mm. and it, it goes on for a while. But like I appreciate it. a long tracking shot around his apartment yeah. as well for the first half. It is uh, it is a fantastic scene. It takes I, him a while to find it. That guy hid the jewels pretty well. And it's Well, it's in his car. Because what the but even lo- in the car he still goes he takes off the door he yeah. checks like he under the, the thing he, he does everything the, he yeah. goes all in the logic of that is so clever to me it's kind of the the like smartest part of the movie because all the blonde guy does is stand there and then Richard Gear goes he's already been upstairs but he doesn't plant it. he hasn't already planted it he plants it whilst Richard Gear is upstairs <laughs> yeah that's is, a, I didn't even is, think of that yeah it, it is the most clever part of the movie because all he all the blonde guy has to do is. M- make Richard Gear leave because he couldn't have planted it on the car until Richard c- planted the car. It's a, it is the most fun bit of detective noir um, stuff in the movie. Dude, that blonde guy, he, he's got some smarts on him and we'll talk about it at the end. You know, he, he's, uh, yeah. he's getting, he's not a good guy. He's though. getting out of there. <laughs> I don't know. He just, le- yeah, he, that is, yeah, he does <laughs> No, he is, <laughs> he, makes loves it he, up. he loves He will throw bounce. any and all of us under the bus. <laughs> yeah. and to, to, like, okay. he, he is a cutthroat. Yeah. Um, in my my notes in this, I wrote for some reason, Richard Gere knows how to pleasure a car. <laughs> <laughs> Julian then walks around LA for a bit and hires a car. He goes in search of the blonde kid that was hanging around with Leon. He spies Leon talking and getting into a car with Ryman. So his suspicions are confirmed that Leon is the one that is framing him. Then he meets with Anne. She's like, you look like shit. He doesn't. He's just got a tiny bit of stubble and he's not wearing a suit jacket. This is yeah. my main comments. The amount of characters that say you look like shit to him when he looks completely better than I'll ever look. Yeah. Like, you know, like most put together. I was just yeah. like, this is hilarious. I really didn't try very hard to scuff him up. I, and I wonder if that's a gear thing. I do, I do wonder. I was like, he's not ugly enough. Like he needs not that he could ever be, but it's like, 
he needs like a stain on his shirt or something. He needs to be untucked at the yeah. least, like no tie. It, Although I, he just walk in and he doesn't have a tie on, like, and the 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 bellhop says, yeah. sorry, the bellhop, the check. Major D, Major D says yeah. you can't come in like that because he's not mm. up to dress code. Hold on, uh, I think it's good actually. Hell yeah, baby! I think that it is just that he's he's spent so long looking exactly the same, always clean shaven, always perfect, always in the pressed suit that for him to look like this is a travesty to everyone else. Right. And it's about his position in high society. He comes into the country club. He's like, you need a jack. And he's like, I left it for work. I forgot. It's like the whole sequence is about like him no longer fitting. He, even whilst looking this beautiful, doesn't matter. He no longer fits into where he uh, started and he worked so hard to Love that. get to. And you're 100% right. Yeah. Um, so he meets he with Anna like and she's furious at him for not meeting with the Swedish lady. So we found out that due to all the, this business that's been going on, he missed kind of his biggest job in the mm. last however many months. That's been set up throughout the whole movie that yeah. he's going to do this job and it's going to be, you know. Then he meets with Michelle at the same restaurant. She tells him they're going to arrest him. He wants her to stay away from him. There's this interesting thing which is pretty much taken from pickpocket again, which is him being like, how do you know I'm in innocent? Um, like, look look me in the eyes and tell me I'm innocent. And she says, I think you're innocent. And then- oh, She does. She's so, so good, good in that scene. But that's the same thing of like, suddenly there is a different style of dialogue around mm. these kind of later scenes of them. And I think it leads us towards the kind of final moment of grace. This doesn't and bounce as hard for me. Mm. I also think that out of all the characters, she's probably the only one that does believe that he's innocent or cares that he's innocent or yeah, not, 100%. Uh, yeah. including the, you know, the alibi that he actually has obviously doesn't give a shit if he goes to jail for it, yeah. you know, like yeah. that kind of like doesn't care. Like he doesn't matter. So this is obviously important. Uh, we also missed that bit with his uh, prior manager. Is it in that scene where she, he asked for her help and she's just like, no. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. It is in that scene. I and that forgot is, to write down the most important part of that scene. And it's interesting because she just says no. And he's like, I'll work exclusively for you. And she's like, I, it's too late. Like you've completely like it. That was, you just fucked up one too many times. Yeah, she, kind of she kind of explains that now that, and Leon explains earlier of like, Hey, no one wants to touch you anymore because you're too hot. Like you're not attractive. Like you're, you're too difficult to kind of deal with because you've got all this heat on you. Yeah. yeah. Um, so no, none of your attention. clients wants, yeah. want you anymore. The world has turned against him. Yeah. So it is a very clear lowest moment. Every, he's and lost every him. ally. Yep. Yeah. Um, Just as Bill Drake's character predicted. Then as he's walking away from Michelle, from Lauren Hutton's character, he says, I never loved you, which is similar. Like they've never said that they love each yeah. other in the movie. Obviously it's very clear, but it's like, and then he walks away and it's like kind of like a teenager being like, I never loved you anyway. That's him trying to like get her to stay. No, 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 no I know. It's very I, simple. I, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Julian then follows Leon and the new boy back to Leon's apartment as we kind of come to the climax of this movie. He follows them in. Julie wants to know why Leon framed him. He reveals what he knows. He throws the um, jewels at him. He knows that the new boy murdered Julie Ryman and Leon's covering it up by framing Julian. Julian begs, how much money do you want? And then Bill Duke says, it don't matter how much, Julie, the other side will always pay more. Mm -hmm. Bill Duke is absolutely fantastic, unbelievable in this scene. He also sits down like Riker from Star Trek yeah, at one point. so good. Oh, and so good. That scene. That uh, there's down. like a lingering shot of his hand resting on a door frame, which is mm. like that That in itself is just so sensual. And yeah. like so, and he, like, he, it's so good. Julian says, why me? Why did you pick me? Bill Duke says, because you were frameable, Julie. You stepped on too many toes. Nobody cared about you. I never cared for you much myself. Mm. 
That's so, so good. And then Julian runs in, pushes Leon off the balcony, which I think is the only part of the movie that really doesn't work. (laughs) I think that doesn't work. There is a thing I've mostly covered in this. The tying of Bill Duke's queerness to his sort of nefariousness in this sequence, particularly the framed of all the Andy Warhol paintings in the background. Torsos. Yeah, I find that ineffective. I think it's, I don't think it works. It also doesn't have any kind of like (laughs) payoff for, you know, because you kind of go like, oh, he falls off, like, fuck, now he's really fucked. Even if he's innocent, he's going to be guilty of this. Then later that isn't even the case. They're like, we're not even charging for that. Yeah. I've also Because the maid saw you try and listen. Save him. That's not how that works. Yeah, that's There's a lot of weird police work in this. Like, they're meant to say you got identified, but they also identified the first one. Oh, the fact that the whole thing revolves around an alibi is very funny. It's like, isn't that inadmissible evidence? I've also been never more wrong about what the twist of the, like, the resolution of this movie was going to be because I was like, oh, he's got a tape recorder. He's recording this conversation. That's how he's going to beat Bill right. Duke. It seems so obvious that he was playing him. And then he pushes him off the balcony. I'm like, Richard, you've got the tape recorder. You've got the tape recorder right in your jacket, don't you? That's why you're wearing your big bulky Armani jacket. No? Um, you had no plan. Yeah. No, he <laughs> you went, came here with nothing. Well, he, he hoped that he could get him to take the take yeah. the heat off him by, by working for him exclusively. I just was like- That was his whole game plan. Then I looked it up and I was like, are, they, are tape recorders too big back then? No. No, no, no. There's nope. definitely, there's like cop movies with tape recorders. And, and he's didn't rich even need as well. To the conversation. That's the other thing is the tearing of the apartment is very, very the conversation. I wonder if it, it would is. have been, I, I just feel like this movie does kind of go off the rails at this point. It does. It gets really, the resolution is really rushed and weird. So the the reason this this looks and feels the way it does, you'll notice like after this scene, suddenly there are it's, blackouts yeah, in every scene. Yeah, it's edited in Microsoft PowerPoint. Um, yeah, that is because it is simply just lifting the ending of Pickpocket. Julian is arrested and sent to prison. Um, seems like a, a very public case. There are a lot of journalists. Kind of made me think of Sympathy for Lady Vengeance because it's like this hot young thing that then becomes like this national case. Never really gets into that. But anyway, Julian is interviewed one last time by Detective Sunday who says, I wish I'd arrested you earlier. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Then the movie fades back out out and back in. Each of these last scenes are little moments of tableau. Um, Michelle comes to visit him in prison. She ends up paying for his lawyers. Julian wants her not to bother. He's now this kind of self-hating. His Ego is completely torn down. Michelle meets with the police detective in charge of his case to say that she thinks Julian is innocent because she was with him the night of the murder. She lies and says that he was with her. One thing we skimmed over there was our last scene with- Oh yes, that is our last scene with Mr. Elizondo. One hour, 48 minutes and 38 seconds is our Hexit Elizondo. And then one hour, giving us Why one hour- Why is not Hector Exizondo? Because did you hear yourself just say Ex-Zondo. that? <laughs> I feel like we could workshop Ex-Zondo? it. Yeah, Hector Exizondo. Okay, it's Hector Exizondo. and Exizondo. Okay, great. Okay. His last line, I believe, is, I wish I'd arrested you first would have prevented a lot of trouble. Great scene, even just just a moment of him in profile, essentially. Then Michelle, final kind of scene of the movie, Michelle and him meet again at the prison. He asks her, why did you do it? She says, I had no choice. I love you. Then he smiles, leans down, rests his head against the glass, says, it's taken me so long to come to you. He rests his head upon the glass, her fingers behind the glass, and her reflection just visible. Still with something in between them, but a final moment of grace for the character mm. that is lifted directly from from Pickpocket. That is just the ending of Pickpocket, is her, him resting his head against a, a cage. Beautiful, but I will also say he, he puts down the phone before he says his final line, which means that 
She cannot hear him. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Schrader says, about the end. At the end of American Gigolo, I wanted to perversely plunge my lizardy protagonist into icy Brissonian waters. So I lifted the ending of Pickpocket and gave it to Julian Kay. A grace note as unwarranted as Christ's promise to the thief on the cross. I had that written down too. And my note after that was, what? <laughs> <laughs> American Gigolo, what do we think? Look, I think it's an important movie. I think it's stylish. I think it's bleak. I think it captures the beginning of the 80s, end of the 70s. I think there's star-making performances. I think the acting is pretty good. I do think that I personally don't know if it achieves all that it's trying to do. And I think that there is – it's dated badly in some regards. But I, I think it's important and I, I enjoyed watching it. And I, I think it was it kind of like I, I was excited to watch it and it made me want to research the time, research what he was doing and kind of check out more of Paul Schrader's stuff. And, um, yeah, I don't have any regrets of watching it. I think it's really good. Mm. I think it is problematic, undeniably. Well, you can argue against it. I think it is, certainly at least with problematic elements. I still think it's a it's a good movie that is doing something very interesting, especially for the time it uh, lived in. Totally. Um, and I'll say this: I think it's better than Holes. Wow, that is very interesting. I it's very, almost very certainly better than Holes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, yeah, I fucking love this movie. I think it's so fucking good. Who was your MVP? <laughs> Bill Duke. Diving guy. Bill. <laughs> I knew you were going to say Cannot that. be diving guy. It's diving guy. Yeah, I, I just think Bill Duke is like astounding in this movie. He, the, uh, he, he's that thing of like, he captures the frame of a camera so well. And it's kind of, it's just something that you can't like teach or you can't like, if someone doesn't have it, they, and it's just like, you just want to look at him and your eyes are just drawn to him. And like, yeah, I just spent the whole movie being like, Holy fucking shit. Like, no wonder he became... Like, there is a thing that Soderbergh does through his career, which is employ Bill Duke to come in and say three <laughs> or four lines. And it's like one of the most... It's one of the best tricks that a director can ever do. Yeah, just, just employed Bill Duke. Employ Bill Duke. <laughs> He's so good. And especially, like, he has... It's like, a good trick? <laughs> it's Sorry. A, it's a good trick rather than a it's rough a good trick. trick. Not a rough um, trick. Uh, it's a tie between Debbie Harry, who is Blondie, who wrote that song that absolutely <laughs> puts Harry, it in. who is Blondie. Yeah. Genuinely, yeah. honestly, that absolutely. is an incredible song and it, it works incredibly song. well for that film and it absolutely sets it up so beautifully. I also think, though, Armani really did George. a great job. George, great choice. Georgie Porgy. Yeah. Absolutely. And diving guy, honestly. He go, in, in terms of what he was set to do and whether he executed it well. He go he, boing splash. Yeah. Like he did he did that. No, you can't fault diving man. He's what, perfect. What we talk about, like, we're, we're, you know, when we're talking about, you know, when we want to talk about su supporting cast, the kind of surrounding mm -hmm. people of the, of, of the movie, we want to like use almost like as a pinhole to see a whole plethora of different movies and obviously Diving Guy has an enormous career that we will follow at some point. God, uh, I wonder if there, I bet um, there's no way to find out who I, I Diving Guy was. One thing I noticed when I was looking at the cast of this is that the older women that he works for, mm. they're all like a series of stage actresses. You know, like they're all like, you can see like, so they're all probably like really, you know, like established older actresses of the stage who, and they're all really fantastic in their scenes they're too. They're so good, yeah. Like they want the woman at the auction, the antiques auction versus her She's first great. day versus second, fantastic. The first woman we see, also good, the woman, the gossipy one at the, like, at the political function. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's, she's wonderful. Those little scenes, really good. Yeah. And you actually get a sense that Richard Gere, has Julian, taste. is, like, enjoying himself with yeah. these women. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Uh, and has good chat. And he, he yeah, I, I, I don't know. I kind of mm. appreciate, as you said before, it's nice to see a level of importance put on to female pleasure, particularly 
older female pleasure. Yeah. And even uh, the lead protagonist, she was 37 when she filmed this. She's not on the younger side of she's no. like playing a grown ass woman. She mm. looks and she looks alive. Yeah. She looks like she's, she's had a life. She's gorgeous. Yeah, it's a, she's older than Richard Gere. Yeah. And I think that that That's is super important. Is important. Like yeah. Be, yeah. Yeah. I can't wait for us to talk about Pretty Woman because mm. my lord we're going to have such a different depiction of sex work. Uh and I think <laughs> Yeah, that, if you think this is problematic. <laughs> uh, I mean, it is it's it's just yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen that movie in a long time. And I'm interested to see like I do ha- think how it approaches it. A part of the reason the conversation around sex work is happening and changing for the better is because we're kind of destigmatizing it. Sex work is empowering for a lot of people. But mm. I think in a lot of scenarios, it isn't. But it's just that it, every fucking story is like, girl needs to get out of her. Like, so she, like, I, I think that's obviously boring and not accurate depiction. Mm. But in these scenarios, I guess there were probably cases in which that was. If it's well presented, then it's fine. But if it's every story is like that and you don't have a. Like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's the no, thing I, about any subclass of either, you know, a, any specific class, whether it be a trade or a race or a, a gender or a sexuality. If there's only one type of story being told about it, that becomes the only thing the culture as a whole associates with it. And that's where, like, the damage of depiction comes from. Yeah, mm. and I think that's this is very much one of those occupations that has suffered from the same depiction over and over again. But if it's good in this case. And I think this one is interesting. I think that American Gigolo is exploring something kind of different and therefore I think it is amazing that there's even a semblance of respect for his career in a movie this early. And I think that's awesome. Absolutely. On a less serious note, I have a little game for us to play. Absolutely. Let's game on. This game is uh, quite simple. It's just, is this a review of American Gigolo or... Deuce Bigelow, <laughs> male Gigolo, <laughs> taken from Rotten Tomatoes. Okay. I'm going to ask you guys to score yourself. Okay, I will score myself. Uh, this is going to start easy. Um, way too slow. The crime was too complicated to even make sense. The acting was great. Mm. 3.5 stars. I'm going to guess American, American Gigolo. Gigolo. Correct. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> Gets a little harder here. The story itself is uninteresting except its title. Three stars. Also- that's a lot for just a title. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to guess American Gigolo again. I am going to go. I mean, I think that Juice Bigelow, Male Gigolo is a more exciting title, worthy of three stars. <laughs> so I'm going to go with that. That is American Gigolo. <laughs> okay, okay. two points. Another, another pretty easy one. Some funny scenes scattered throughout, but uh, for the most part, could have been better. Juice Bigelow, Male Gigolo. <laughs> That's going to be Juice Bigelow. That is correct. <laughs> That was a very. Uh, here we go. It gets a little bit more complicated here. Boring, poorly edited, and produced. Two stars. Juice Bigelow, male gigolo. I'm going to say American gigolo. American gigolo is Damn correct. It. Uh, mo- <laughs> I love this one. A modern classic that reinforces the time honored truth that fulfillment comes from through the love of others and then oneself. Five stars. That's Juice, Juice Bigelow. Bigelow. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? That was correct. Uh, oh, we're tying. We're tying. Another one. Another one about the names. What is that name and what is that script? One and a half stars. Oh. I'm going to guess Juice. I'm going to guess American Juice. Juice. Oh, juice. Juice. Dude. Juice. I love this one. It's just, it has a deep theme about society. <laughs> These get harder as they go along. I think it's Juice Bigelow. I think that's American Gigolo. It's Deuce. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) He was the man in this movie. Three exclamation marks. Woo-ee. I love to be the older woman in here. (laughs) Two exclamation marks. That's Lincoln's Four stars. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, well, that's, I didn't know you, you were going to read my review <laughs> on the pod. Uh, I Well, I know that that is my review of American Gigolo, so mm-hmm. I have to guess it. American Gigolo. That is indeed American Gigolo. Is that actually your review? No. <laughs> you said that. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that was your bit. Well, I was yes ending you. We're almost done. We're almost done. This last one is I'm going to win the Powerball tonight and the Mega Million Friday night. One star. <laughs> That's juice. Juice. That's American. <laughs> wow, we drew. Uh, well, almost there. Almost there. A very good show gives me Breaking Bad vibes. <laughs> you can work this out. Wait. Uh, that's American Sniper? <laughs> no, that's. It ha- I get- <laughs> it- <laughs> Hang on, is it the TV production of? Yeah, um, yes, 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 American yes, yes. Uh, As you work that out first, you get a point. Yeah, you don't, Lincoln. Uh, yeah, someone accidentally reviewed the film instead of the TV <laughs> series. Like, huh? uh, and this final one, boring, shallow. I wonder it would have if it would have been different with someone else doing the lead. Half a star for the not so often seen themes. Um, I'm going to say American Gigolo. Juice Bigelow. American Gigolo. Ah. So I won, the winner I won, I won, is I Charles. Charles. Um, I do have a prize for you, Charles. Uh-oh. I do have a small prize for you. <laughs> uh, just in my bag right now. It is, of course, once again. <laughs> <laughs> the, Christmas, the Christmas special of The Office. Signed, of course, by Cormac McCarthy. I wow! You had two copies, both signed. <laughs> wow! Wow! How does it? Fe- how do you feel? I feel like no matter what happens, this will come back to me. <laughs> like no matter where I am in my life, I'll be like trying to run away, and this signed the office for yeah, call you'll, back you'll, you'll be in prison, uh, and then you go to pick up the phone to <laughs> <laughs> signed copy of the office Christmas special. I had no choice. I loved your, you. Rest your head against. No, I'm going to be hand. in bed, and I'm going to like wake up, and I'm going to pull the sheets back, and it's, instead of a horse head, it's going to be the signed the office Christmas special by Cormac McCarthy. Godfather stuff. Um, thank Ooh. you so much. I would cherish it. I would cherish it. I want to talk about the TV show really quickly, though. Please yeah. do. I watched the first episode. It's um came out in 2014. The lead, one of the lead actors from The Walking Dead, plays Julian John Benthal. Yes, and he's great. He's actually good casting. He looks great. Recently, uh, incredible in the bear. It's set in t- like it's set 15 years after the original events of. Oh, oh, it's not like he's a been remake. in prison. Like a, okay. Oh wait. For what? 15 years. At some point he gets out of prison at the end of this movie? Well, not in this version. This version, he is in prison for 15 years. Yeah, that is the point of the movie. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 this is a very weird yeah. adaptation. So we start with him in prison uh, and we start with suddenly Detective Sunday, who's back but in not Rosie Hector. O'Donnell form. Oh. So we've got our gender bend on Sunday. Honestly, she's doing good work here. Okay. Uh, I just really didn't like this Unfortunately, not a good episode yep. of television. <laughs> the best bit about it was we're framed in the way that he's suddenly they've discovered new evidence and he's been wrongly accused. He gets led out of prison for this crime. Then he has to kind of go and like patch it together and see who actually, because it turns out that he, his alibi came through or something like that. Like they don't know who did the murder still, yeah. but he is let free. Oh, don't so know he's how that like works. Trying to track down the murderer. Yeah. The only bit that I enjoyed was there's like a smash cut of him like remembering his days as the American gigolo and it's to, of course, Blondie. Poor me, and it's him driving in a car. It's just I only liked the bits that reminded me of the old movie. (laughs) But um, it's really an unsexy. There's not a lot of sex in this 
pilot, which is like fine. But what annoyed me is they already had like going into his trauma. Okay, oh, it goes into yeah, his past. His past as kind a kid, exclusively mm. what you should not yep. do. Yeah, and I think what's been funny about it is like it might have been an interesting like hour of television, but there's ten. It's a ten part series. And it just that you know every single character gets like some kind of childhood trauma flashback and like, and I think I read a review and it made me laugh out loud. Someone was like, "If you did this with Taxi Driver, it'd be like you'd have like a nine-year-old, uh, what's his name, Travis, um, yeah, 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 like touching a wheel for the first time." Like, <laughs> and then as the music crescendos, and I actually laughed out loud because that is exactly what yeah, they're trying to do yeah. with this. And Wait, it's just so- one of those pointless <laughs> remakes or redo of a show. It got cancelled after one season. It was not well received. People didn't mind him, his performance, and he's. Burnt not off. doing bad Burnt work. Off. Always good. But it just was not. And good casting. I think he kind of gives off a bit mm. of a similar vibe in this. Um, yeah. Although he's a bit more hardened, you know, he's mm. been in prison for 15 yeah, years. There is a pretty awful scene set in prison, you can probably imagine. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. uh, anyway, I think uh, he. it's not good. So don't watch it is my take home. But I was interested to see that people thought it had enough legs to kind of give it a reboot, but not set it in the 80s. Big mistake. I think that that... Yeah, setting it in 1995 is... A weird choice. <laughs> yeah. It's a very weird choice. No, sorry, it's too... Uh, it must be longer than that. It's like 2000 and... They make it 2006. So, like yeah. really so he, yeah. he gigoloed in the 90s. Yeah, I think they have like... It's not, it's not oh, entirely... Right. It's not faithful. necessarily yeah. like... Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. All yeah. round sounds like a terrible idea. Yeah, it's interesting. And just <laughs> so again, true. like a classic thing where this works really well as a movie. If because you, you have a clean, like, we don't need to know anything else about this character. Sometimes stories should be told in somewhere between an hour and 30 and three hours long. Alternately, we do a Monk-style TV series where it's Hector Elizondo and Richard Gere going around solving crimes and they're all somehow sex-related and Richard Gere has the eye for that. Why is that Monk? I mean, like, crimes that are not. So <laughs> Monk's OCD is Richard Gere's sex stuff? Yeah, he just understands He just understands uh, people so well. It's like uh-huh. a full genius detective thing uh-huh. around Richard Gere. All right, how do we feel like Mr. Grey would fit into this universe? What's, well, he, th- what's he doing? <laughs> Think now, this is a great idea of a Hector Elizondo, <laughs> Hector Elizondo cinematic universe. I'm sure we'll do this every the time. The multiverse. But the, the like... <laughs> <laughs> He's standing next to a fucking portal. <laughs> like he comes through and they like point at each other and it's like, it's like the Spider-Man, but they don't know that because they're yeah, in the yeah, 70s. Yeah. <laughs> I do like the idea of Mr. Grey and Detective Sunday. Well, it would be, that's the cat and mouse game is Detective Sunday trying to catch this renegade from the mafia who got let go from the mafia, was never a made man <laughs> and trying to hunt him down. And he plays both roles. That's actually good. Hector, Hit me up. <laughs> I also think he could um, fit into the lineup. You know, Mister Mister Blue is also in the lineup oh, because yeah, he was yeah, there yeah. committing some Absolutely. other crime. At the time. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> he, we just we just want more Hector in every movie, essentially. Something actual is like, and what we're talking about, we're talking about the progression of his career. It's like the range on this guy, like really the, big, the range. like stretch from even like. You could say they're semi-similar movies, like Taking and 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 this movie, mm. but it's like his performances are completely different and completely yeah. aimed at different things and aimed at different kind of styles and tones. Yeah. And I think that's He's very transformative. Cool. <laughs> I'd like to thank Hector for pulling out another incredible performance for us to talk about. And mm. uh, next week we will be diving into Pretty Woman. What if there was a lady that was pretty? Mm. She's very pretty. 
that's not the point of the film. But <laughs> another, I mean, it's obviously, not, not the point they, of the they film. share they share quite a few similarities as films. One including Richard Gere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's the other thing. It's like Richard Gere, Hector Elizondo kind of combo. And then finally, <laughs> I would love to order that from McDonald's. <laughs> so we we've got a this would be interesting kind of in terms of career trajectory where we're getting into like the next kind of phase, which Hector ends up working with this director continuously and ends yeah. up kind mm. of reshaping his career to what we would know as audiences. Well, uh, as, probably, as younger audiences. As younger like, audiences, yeah. like who, mm. like what we recognise him from. So it's actually been cool to explore the earlier stuff yeah. and I've loved being able to watch, Um, you know, if you did click on this episode or to listen to it, uh, thank you for doing that. I know it's one of those movies that people don't really think about or talk about that often. Except for me. <laughs> uh, but I'm glad we talked about it. There's a lot in there and I recommend giving it a watch. I don't re-watch movies very often because there are a lot of movies and I like to – I like watched this movie on two consecutive days. Part, partly that was like, I wanted to like watch it without taking notes and then write notes. Uh, and But I was like, there is something about this movie that is like really captivating and interesting to me. I don't know what that says about me, <laughs> but there is something in here about- Horny. Like the, <laughs> I mean, maybe just horny, but this like, you know, em- empty soulless man and like mm. all, all of that stuff is like really fascinating to me. And I, and it's made me be like, because mm, I've, I've never been a Schrader guy and it's made me, do you know what Schrader's next film is? Uh, Cat People? No, no, sorry, not next after this that he's doing right now. Oh, no. Because he did his, like, the troika of First Reformed, Card Counter, and The Constant Gardener, which are, like, three very, like, uh, God's Loneliest Man films. Interesting. And now he's doing a movie called O Canada about an aging sex worker who's dying. And do you know who's playing? It's Gear. It's, it's got to be Gear. Yeah, Gear's back. Oh, I'm oh gearing my gosh. up. The, I'm gearing up for O Canada then. Yeah. Wow. I don't know kind of what it is about this movie, but something about it like really kind of has kind of stuck around with me and like made me want to like unpack it, like which I think is always mm. an exciting thing. Like uh, taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, I fucking love that movie. I think it rules. There's no part of me that wants to like, I want to dive into every scene and think about the camera moves and think about like mm. the lighting chases and the, you know, Scarfiotti's work and all of that stuff. It's like, but this is a movie that really makes makes me want to like lean in and, and, and kind of yeah. grapple with it. And all of that stuff that we're talking about, all the problematic stuff and all the difficult kind of thorniness of this movie, I think mm. is really, really interesting. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, if you <laughs> want to hear more about what our thoughts are on random different films or you want to see anything, you can follow us on most platforms at, at Supporting Cast Pod. But thank you so much for tuning in once again. And yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Give us a like and subscribe. It really means a lot to us. And uh, tell your friends that they are Hector Elizondo fans. <laughs> get, get the Hector heads. 